As I passed a low pavilion where a crowd of helpless lunatics were confined, I read a motto on the wall, While I live, I hope. The absurdity of it struck me forcibly. I would have liked to put above the gates that open to the asylum, He who enters here leaveth hope behind. Nellie Bly, Ten Days in a Madhouse Through me you go into a city of weeping. Through me you go into eternal pain. Through me you go amongst the lost people. Eternal and eternal I endure. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Dante Alighieri, The Inferno. Welcome back to Penhurst Part 2. I'm Shanna, your hostess with the mostest. I'm PJ. I'm Laura. <laughs> I'm Ray. Hi, I'm Dan. Hi, Dan. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm bored. Hi, Laura. Ooh. How are you? Okay. I'm good. Oh, that's wonderful. How about you, Ray? I'm spiffy. Sp- Ooh. Hi. I didn't, I didn't talk to you. Hi. Oh. Hi, PJ. Hi. Hi. Hmm. All right, so anyway, this week we're going to pick right up um, with Penhurst. Last time when we were here, we discussed all the nitty-gritty. We discussed, you know, um, what Penhurst was and what asylums were in general in that time period. We also discussed what was happening behind closed doors at Penhurst. And we had touched base on the court cases that had come, but I said we're going to hold off on that because we're going to discuss the expose instead. Because the expose comes out in the 60s, and then it takes a good eight years before some real court cases are brought in front of uh, the jury. And then from there, it takes another 10 years plus to actually enact some really big change. So today we're going to focus on the court cases, and then we're going to talk about the ghosts that are there and our opinions on whether it's haunted and the Penhurst Haunted House Asylum tour. That's all I got. Not a fan. No, I'm not a fan. I refuse. So that was actually the sound of her getting up. She's just making old woman noises now. <laughs> it's me annoyed. <laughs> Sounds a lot like me getting up or sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm going to go. Um, so how are you guys all feeling after last week? Disturbed, I would say. Depressed. <laughs> Glad I could be here. Uh, yeah, th- thanks. This is just me and my natural habitat. I'm fine. <laughs> Unrelated to last week's episode, I feel great because <laughs> Games Overboard had a great episode. Uh, yes, it did. It was fantastic. Yes, it was. Quite. So anyway, let's go in back <laughs> into the depressing. So, <laughs> Your mood is too happy. We must be depressed. Gotta bring now. it down. Bring it back down. Um, so we purposefully used the quotes from Nellie Bly's uh, nonfiction um, where she was in a madhouse when she made that kind of comparison to Dante's writing. So I read the original Dante's Inferno because I think it's just so telling of what life was like in Penhurst. Um, you know, we t- heard the stories last time. And if you've ever read Dante's Inferno with all the circles of hell, a lot of the stuff that you saw happening there is in the Inferno. Like there is a section where you're rolling in your own feces and stuff, right? And you're choking on it too. So a lot of it is very similar to the Dante's Inferno. Um, well, the first part, I should say, because 
It's a three-part series. So there are three major court cases that come because of Pennhurst. Um, Before the Halderman case, which Dan and Ray know a lot about from our research, there actually was the right to education lawsuit in 1971. Fun fact, and I use fun sarcastically, three of our most major lawsuits for education and for the rights of disabled came from Pennsylvania because the terrible things we were doing here. So, well, you know, we are the Keystone State guys. Yeah, we hold it all together. Um, and it's just interesting because my PhD is in ethical leadership. And so one of my first classes as I headed into this PhD program, and it was in the master's program too, was looking at these court cases that kind of changed the world. And I was like, yeah, I live up here, y'all, because <laughs> y'all are from Florida. Like, I've lived through this. Um, so the first one was the right to education law in 1971. Then there was the Halderman uh, versus Pennhurst State School, which, of course, eventually shuts the place down, which we know a lot about because you guys had quoted it, um, Ray and Laura, last week um, about the one girl who had fallen and hurt herself. Um, she is the main reason why that happened, Terry Lee Halderman. And then finally, there was Youngberg versus Romeo in 1982. So there are three major court cases. And all of these um, eventually are going to have some kind of positive repercussion on the educational field. Um, And just before I even go into these three court cases, I want to paint a little picture of last week. Okay. Now, I'm not going to say where this comment was made and who made it. Okay. But there was a comment that was made to me as I was discussing, because it was after Tuesday. And I said, oh, yeah, we just did a really great recording on, on Penhurst Part 1, and we were discussing the lack of rights for the disabled in the 60s and 70s. And I said, you know, so, you know, from that, you know, from Penhurst shutting down, lots of great things came. And the person said, well, everyone was just whining a whole bunch about that. That was ridiculous. It was all overblown. Penhurst, places like Penhurst need to be open because where are these kids going to go? And I looked at the person and I said, don't you have a younger sister who is disabled? Well, of course. Well, where does she go? To school. And I know what school this person goes to. And I said, Okay, so you let, you're let you letting her go to public school. Yeah. And she's in a life skills class? Yeah. Well, if it wasn't for Pennhurst having litigation, there would be no option for your sister to go to public school. Well, that's what my taxes pay for. Yeah, they do now. Yeah. <laughs> like, it didn't now happen. they do. That's the right to education, which came out right after the Pennhurst saga, which, of course, leads into things like, well, IDEA in the future. And so that kind of shut that person down. And so I think um, while this podcast is supposed to be about scary things, I feel like we are going to learn a lot here, too. Like, don't just assume that you know more than we do, first off. And number two, you have to have things like this happen so positive things can come out of it. Can I just say, I think real people can be real scary. So I think it still (laughs) counts. Yeah, it does. (laughs) All right. So did you guys do any research? Have you heard of right to education? And I'm putting y'all on the spot here. PJ does. But you guys don't really have education backgrounds. I mean, like, I've I've heard of it in passing. So this was the lawsuit that came from PARC. PARC stands for, well, stood for, obviously they've changed it since then, uh, Pennsylvania Association for Retarded Children. And as you mentioned in last week's podcast, um, words like retarded, moron, imbecile, they're going to be used in this podcast because of the time period. Remember, those were official diagnoses, as PJ mentioned. So PARC actually sued the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania because they were sick and tired of um, just all of the issues going against the disabled. They weren't able to get true education. So I'm going to start with that one and then we'll go on to Halderman. Is that good? I have my court case filings here. Oh, look at that. 
I'm prepared, Dan. All right. If you'll look at exhibit A. <laughs> if you'll look at exhibit five for me. Anyway, so I have here actual sections out of um, the court case itself. And so they actually brought a whole bunch of lawsuits against the Commonwealth. There are four major statutes that they were saying were excluding retarded children um, from education. And again, I'm using that term because it's coming out of the text. So legally speaking... You're supposed to, uh, every child from like 6 to 21 is supposed to have education. Um, every kid should be in school from the age of 8 to 17. If you didn't know that, that's a legal precedent in Pennsylvania. But I'm going to read from here. It says, um, any persons between the ages of 6 and 21 whom the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, through its local school districts and intermediate units, is presently excluding from a program of education and training in the public schools, that would be the mentally retarded. So they are purposely excluding them because they could. And so they uh, said that the exclusions of retarded children complained of are based upon four state statutes, one which relieves the State Board of Education from any obligation to educate a child whom a public school psychologist certifies as uneducable and untrainable. The burden of caring for such a child then shifts to the Department of Welfare. So isn't it interesting that the State Board of Education says it has no obligation to teach children who have mental disabilities? That was the precedent until mm -hmm. 1971. And if they're deemed by a psychologist that they're uneducable, it goes to the Department of Welfare. Guess what? Department of Welfare is under le legally no obligation to provide any educational services for the child. So Pennhurst technically wasn't breaking any laws. Because if it's Department of Welfare, if they were following that department, they're not, under no obligation. Another statute allows an indefinite postponement of admission to public school of any child who has not attained a mental age of five years. So if you can't pass your IQ test at a certain percentage, well, now I don't teach you because your IQ is too low. You're uneducable. Another statute uh, appears to excuse any child from compulsory school attendance whom a psychologist finds unable to profit therefrom. And one last statute, identify, statute de defines compulsory school age as 8 to 17 years, but has been used in practice to postpone admissions of retarded children until age 8 or to eliminate them from public schools at age 17. So they kick you out. So Park goes in front of the Commonwealth and basically sues them and they say, like, this is inappropriate. All children are supposed to have appropriate education. And you're saying these kids aren't trainable, but they can learn something. And to go back to last week's discussion, a lot of the people that they interviewed, those the former residents, they missed being there because they had jobs there. So how do you feel about the idea that if you're disabled, you don't deserve an education? Well, I think we've proven as a society time and time again that that's complete bollocks uh yep. yeah how do you like that one british uh-huh uh no i <laughs> well watch your language <laughs> well, at least i didn't oh, say no, the I'm other b word box is okay bloody's bad right that's right it's bloody that's the bad one mm -hmm. they don't really say bollocks a whole lot either no i mean it's it's, it's balls didn't you use the that's word bloody means. before in front of your dad and he smacked you oh yeah i got yelled over that there you go yeah <laughs> that's what i thought oh yeah okay back back to the story at hand um no, I, we see it every day, even even still, uh, that you have people that have a mental disability that's working just fine. They might need a little more guidance. Maybe you have to tell them a few times to do it, but they'll do it. Um, my mother's aunt was um, disabled, and she was able to hold her own. She could hold down a job. She could hold down an apartment. No problem. I'm sure she would have been admitted to that no problem, uh, you know, Penhurst, if the family ever decided to mm -hmm. put her in there. 
So it's not about, for this, it's not about willing to, uh, if they're willing to learn, it's about if somebody is willing to actually sit down and, and take the time with them. I think that's the problem is that well, that's the, there was a status quo and no one wanted to upset it, you know? Right, like, and that's actually something that gets handled in the Holderman case. Uh, they, yep. they bring up that. Uh, we'll talk yeah. about that in a little bit, but they bring up something close to that as well. Well, they do, because they, that one came after this one. Yeah. And so this had the precedence then for Halderman to make their class action lawsuit. Right. Mm-hmm. I think well, it's sad. I don't know if it's entirely surprising. I mean, yeah. taking into consideration the history of history. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, just, I mean just the history of the disabled in any way, yes. shape, or form. Yeah. Yes. Uh, somebody there that is was... precedence for like this sort of mentality. Oh, yeah. And, and it's not just a mental disability. It's somebody that was well, it's once perfectly that's... fine and they get disabled because of an accident yes. at work. You know, even before this, suddenly you're useless to society. Well, it's anything to be perceived as less than. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. And, and when it comes to like making a change, any time there's like extra work involved to change, <laughs> it, you know, it's like, oh, I want to do like, is there me. a way, is there a way we just cannot do this? You know, right. and like, we've been, I've been doing just fine all this time without having this change. Like, do I don't we hear need them to change? complaining. Yeah. We'll see that. That's, that's the word that you hit upon. It's change. Mm hmm. Uh, that's something that we as a society don't take too kindly to. Yeah. What's well, eh. the problem of like state funds? Oh yeah, taxes. Yep. Hence that whole conversation. I'm like, well, your taxes are going there now. <laughs> like, yeah. They're going somewhere else before, and it really didn't work well. Um, but you know, you mentioned a lot of things like you know teaching them self sufficiency. There are ways to make them have a good habitation. You know, mm-hmm. that's the t- proper term we use. Um, but. In the actual lawsuit, they said, despite the evidence and despite the fact that Pennsylvania provides an education to most children, the state's 1965 Pennsylvania Mental Retardation Plan estimates that while 46,000 school-age retarded children were enrolled in public schools, another 70 to 80,000 retarded children between the ages of 5 and 21 were denied access to any public education, services in schools, home or daycare, or other community facilities, or even state residential institutions. So you had a fraction of those kids somewhere, Mm -hmm. a mere fraction. And what's even more horrifying is later in it, they mentioned fewer than 2% of the residents of Pennsylvania state schools leave by rolls each year, and half of those by death rather than by discharge. So again, we have no number it's it's unknown how many people died at Pennhurst but if you have less than one percent of your kids graduating or leaving these places and most of it's by death obviously you have a problem so once Park brought this against the state there is no way Pennsylvania could win because it's just it's just showcasing they're like well look at this recent expose done by Bill Baldini mm-hmm. this is just one of your schools right um so obviously the state lost um and so lots of changes came, but they're all major at the end of it. And I don't want to bore you anymore with the readings because for people like me and Pete, they're like, oh, this is fun to read because this is like the basis of our education. Um, but initially, EHA is signed. EHA stands for Education for All Handicapped Children Act, which we mostly call Public Law 94-142. Uh, that was the precursor to IDEA. And so from there, President uh, Gerald Ford actually uh, signed that into law in 1975. And so from there, we get the idea of FAPE. 
and FAPE stands for Free and Appropriate Public Education. So everyone deserves public education. If you're paying your taxes, they go to your school. And if they reside in your in your area of school, they go to that school. And that school is in charge of them. That's why we get state and local funding for that. And so, of course, 1990 it becomes IDEA because they add new things like autism and traumatic brain injury as categories. Um, they fo- uh, focus on transition services. So we have to help make sure the kids get jobs when they leave high school, right, which is ne- uh, necessary. And it's just the groundwork for gifted education, which is where I fall, you know, because my students deserve a free and appropriate public education as well. They're being held back in class. They need to work ahead. They need to accelerate. So for me, that is a really important landmark case. Again, happens here in Pennsylvania, uh, like many of the other ones. How do you feel about Park and uh, all this? I mean, Park itself, the name of it's terrible. So I'm glad that they have changed yeah. <laughs> from P.A.R.K. Well, to something else. It's but. not like it's terrible now, but at the time, like it was. What progressive? Just, it was just no. Well, it was no. I'm just term. talking about the name. Like it no. was just a medical diagnosis. You know, like, right? It was, it was just, scientific for the time. Yeah. So. Um, while, you know, like saying saying the word now is an issue, like I have no issue with the way it was called then because it was literally just what it was called. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, we like you said, we used that we used retardation in our paperwork up until just a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure I could go back in my files and find some some of my current students with that oh, yeah. with that label in their old that files. designation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a quote that I'm very fond of, and and we talk about it a lot at work, um, especially related to DEI related work. But um, it's it's that old phrase: uh, when you know better, do better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I think a lot of times people look at these things as as super negative rather than a, this is a fact. And we have evolved in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's, I mean, that's mm-hmm. part of why these stories are important is to teach us about the things that we don't want to do, that we want to actively as a society move away from and improve upon. So, you know, I think that, you know, even right now as a society, there are things that we're in flux about and people might even feel like they're being shamed or they might feel ashamed. And that's okay. It's just an evolution. It's a shedding of an old skin Mm -hmm. and going into something new. Well, and to build off of our previous discussion of the uncanny valley, right? I feel like you can't help the way that you're born. You know, I can't help that I have my hair color or my eye color. I can't help that I, my face looks like my mama's. You know, it's just, it is what it is. So to think that someone's less than or deserves less than you or someone else because they have a mental handicap or they have a physical disability, that's just completely inappropriate. So we need to reassess where our uncanny valley is and become more empathetic. If it wasn't for that expose, the empathy toward special needs people I don't think would be where it was then. It was so prescient in the early 1970s then because of that landmark expose. And so mm-hmm. I feel like because of that, there was an impetus to get all of these laws passed and, and to, to do some some good old suing <laughs> the American way to get the things that we needed. But it's just, it, it's so stark to me that while there was that impetus to really push, it took another almost like, what, two decades to get everything mm-hmm. fully pushed through. Mm-hmm. And that just shows how slow it is for us to kind of curtail our thoughts. And then in the year 2023, have a conversation <laughs> that shouldn't have happened. And like I mentioned last week, we're going right back to these institutions. It was mentioned in the Penhurst movie. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it seems likely that these institutions will be coming back, but hopefully we'll have learned some lessons and they will not come back in this um, repeated form. Well, and you mentioned that one, Coke, but the other one I love is those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. Yep. Yeah. So hopefully everyone downloads this two-part series and they learn more about these institutions and they say, no, I won't have this anymore. All right, so next one, then, after the landmark case of right to education, which sets the precedence of, for PJ's current degree, actually, yep. um, is the Halderman versus Penn, uh, Pennhurst State School. And I know that you guys did a lot of research on that. So if you want to take it away, you go ahead. Yeah, so this uh, this started off uh, in May 30th, 1974. It was a 32-day trial. Um, it was, a, like we said before, it was a class action, class action lawsuit. Um, which was for the residents of Penhurst against the institution, its superintendents, and the state officials. So yeah, it was a pretty big one. It was going, they, they were going after everybody they could on this one. Um, the judge found that they were uh, in violation of the first, eighth, Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment rights of all the individuals that had been um, institutionalized. In this place, uh, which it's one thing to go against one, but you're going up against multiples. You're not going to have a good time, especially if your last court case went down in flames. This court case is going to sink you bad. (laughs) Yeah. And it did. It really, really did. Um, Among other things. So the judge ruled that it was uh, against the right to habilitation. Thanks. The right to be free from harm and the right to non-discriminatory habilitation. Um. So you really have a lot going against you just on, uh, I mean, not only do you have all the amendments, but now you've got these three uh, really, really particular barbs that they're really hitting these people with. Uh, Indisputable. Indisputable ones. Exactly. Well, you say that until it goes to appeal. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. It goes into appeal and then it holds everything up for another almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. The judge of this case, particular case, was U.S. Court Judge Raymond J. Broderick, and he had found that Penhurst was overcrowded, understaffed, and lacked the programs needed for adequate habilitation. So the word adequate too, like just yeah, adequate. adequate, just decent. When someone <laughs> yeah. tells, so when someone tells you that you're not adequate, that really cuts you to the bone because you're like, I'm not even average. <laughs> I suck all around. So with that whole adequate and the fact that they were understaffed and he even noticed you guys are completely understaffed, that's what, in his mind, they use the uh, unwarranted restraints. You know what really gets me? Just the excerpts and just like the, you know, the the stories and what's happened to people, even like Terry Lee Halderman and just hearing about the injuries that she sustained, when 40 I, I, injuries. I think mm-hmm. why this was such a great, why he ruled after 30 days and the plaintiff's favor is because of the stories. The stories. Oh, yeah. But, uh, Stan was saying, so we're going to get to all the stories. I figured, okay. like, you got that in the bag. But Ish, he said the yeah. physical environment was found to be hazardous to the residents, both physically and psychologically, because they were using seclusion rooms, as Dan, you mentioned that, physical yeah. restraints and psychotropic drugs. Remember, it was the, it was a drug right. capital. Yeah. Um, so he said it was not conducive to learning new skills, and it was so poor that it contributes to losing skills already learned. So if you send anybody there with any education, they lost it all because of what they were experiencing. Right. 
so I just I found him to be such a great judge that he he said yes to all of this. He said absolutely to the the Fourteenth and Eighth Amendments, especially you are you are breaking the law. So Ray, you mentioned there are lots of stories though, and I think that's really what affects me the most as we review some of the research. Um, even like I was um, trying to say, like Terry Lee Halderman. And her experiences, you hear like 40 injuries, you hear like she doesn't speak afterwards, you know, and the trauma that that implies, um, things that have been done to people, whether it's through drugs, whether it's through violence, it's uncanny and it's sick and it's inhumane. Um, you know, what's done to residents, what's um, the, the examples of abuse. Um, and the hard thing to really fathom is, and we mentioned this, you know, in the first um, session, as it were, was that this happened to children. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah we cannot forget that these yeah. are kids, so, too. To, but, to piggyback on what you were saying, the what the judge here, what Judge Broderick said, um, which, again, it goes back to that keyword adequate, is he says that all of these things were used in lieu of adequate staffing. Yeah. So... You have to wonder, it wasn't them trying to do what was what they thought was best. It was them doing what, you know what, screw it. We got to do this because we don't have enough people. Or So was there a lack of funding or was there a, the ability to get more staff and they did not? That, See, I, I, I have questions. I don't questions. know. Yeah, I I don't know because what, what were we saying that the, the staff were pulling down? Especially the the well, the we know that eighty percent of their their money went to paying the staff, right? And if you're getting government funding, especially at a place that's supposed to be making millions of, they're getting millions of dollars. Uh, come on, this is this is the the fifties, sixties, seventies. Your minimum wage isn't that much, but no. then again, everything you know, inflation isn't going to be huge. Well, I mean, I will say um, that, you know, Ray and I have both worked as business consultants and the main um, expense for any organization is typically payroll. (laughs) It's typically payroll. But I don't know if that's true for healthcare specifically, because you would think that the health care would actually cost more than the payroll. But I don't know. And then you wonder, this place, as we mentioned, too, was meant to be self-sufficient. I mean, they, right. as Ray mentioned, they even had the railroad coming through there. That's right. So there should have been an offset of costs because they were growing their own food. Yeah, they had yeah, their own so right. infrastructure. Yes, what, 6,000 acres? 600. 600. Yeah. 600. That sounds better. Over 600, yeah. Those 600 acres <laughs> and they, you know, didn't have these resources or, you know, didn't, want, you know. Right make these resources and you know a reality and, and regardless to go back because i know where you're gonna go over I, I know you have some stuff circled there on that one paper on your mm-hmm. right um i do yes i'm sorry there if I is your thunder. With, with, all right with those stories it's our thunder dan oh, yeah. it's happening to children you know and they're there for years suffering at this place so they go mm-hmm. from right. children to adulthood they get used to this mess which is just horrifying to me, there's no justification how much you're getting paid. Like, hire extra staff. I think I last time we had mentioned there was like a $4 million uh, pitfall and they only had so many nurses and doctors on staff and teachers. Hire more. Tell a state you need to hire more. I don't understand. You know? Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Right. But at the same time, if you're looking at from that way in a business state, 
what is the minimum that they can get away with. I know. If it's something yeah. that's not being um, regulated, that's not being looked into hard enough. Well, then, and this is why there's auditors for schools now. Right. Then you're going to get away with what would be your basic needs for this. I think in the state of Pennsylvania, one special teacher can have 65 kids on their roster, right? Yes. Uh, unless you have your own resource room, then it's only like 25 or something like that. But. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? 65 kids. Tell me how you're supposed mm. to adequately help them. Adequately. Adequately. <laughs> adequately. See, that's our key word for the night, ladies and gentlemen. Can you yeah. say adequate? So we still have some ways to go. But, Ray, what were some of the stories that What's they What's a variation in? on a theme? I mean, you know, violence, abuse, violence, abuse. Wait, what? Was there restraints? more violence and abuse? Yes. Yeah. I, so. I, I you know, like, Sorry, I, I, think I definitely. I that. Violence and what? Injury. Oh. oh. Violence, injury, <laughs> abuse. I feel like. <laughs> We shouldn't joke about this. But but even in the, it's um, not funny, no, but like, like but, but what else broken, are you going to do? Like, or how else can you react to something right. that is mm-hmm. so yeah. unfathomable? Do, do, I was going to say um, uh, demeaning in your soul. But, well, uh, yeah, that too. We need some dark humor to get through this. It's you know, coping. That's well, all I know. It is a coping. That's mechanism. all I am is dark humor anymore, guys. You know this. <laughs> oh, Dan. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> even the story from Suffer the Little Children. Uh, early in the expose where there's this kid who used to be really chatty. They sent him to the Quaker mm-hmm. building for a while and he came back and just wouldn't talk anymore because of the things that happened in the Quaker building. Those darn Quakers. You know, yeah, ironically, it was the most violent building <laughs> I know. in that, the well, that, I think I said that last, last week. Time, yeah, yeah, yeah. And how we react to something like this. Um, I couldn't help but um, recently I reread... Um, and you'll have to pron- help me with the pronunciation, Night, by Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel. And if you read through it, of course, it. I mean, most, I don't know if everybody has read it, but it, you know, it's almost like a should. memoir. Everybody should, you know, of his experience mm-hmm. in a concentration camp, so ergo, during the Holocaust. And it's so like this unfathomable, but mm-hmm. at the same time, if you kind of listen to how he relays the story, it's, I don't want to call it an outright levity in his approach, but there is a, a there is a wit, there is a sarcasm. Yeah, and right. I think sometimes you can't help, especially if you've gone through something like that, to leverage off of that um, mentality, that frame, so to speak, to sorry about that to get through it you know and when we read this and i didn't even experience it and i didn't even experience it but it's not necessarily that i think i want to make light of it or that any of us mean to make light of it it's just that this is how we cope with hearing about such tragedy well if you know anyone who works in the emergency response uh field whether it's 911 operators doctors nurses they always have the most morbid sense of humor because mm-hmm. you need it. Yeah. You know, yeah. you really do. And mm-hmm. this that's the kind of thing like we need to get through these episodes here. <laughs> it's well, like I mean, something it's... to like bring, you know, to bring our spirits up and to like mentally deal with it. Right. Or else how else do you? Yeah. You know? Do you know what else I was thinking? I'm sorry. I, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but throughout researching this and just kind of reflecting on everything that's gone on, you know, everything from how could this happen in our own backyard? Because really, mm-hmm. we're from Pennsylvania. We live just a couple of hours. It's like, you know... Yeah, Philly's, what, an hour and a half, two hours tops? Yeah, two hours tops. I can get... Sorry, I keep doing that. You um, just talk with your hands, you know, you get... I know. You're into it. 
I, yeah, two I hours am. with traffic. With tra- two well, hours with of traffic, traffic, but you right. know what? Like, if I leave early enough, I can be from our driveway to Philadelphia, like Center City, Philadelphia, in under two hours. Oh, yeah. You know, it's really not that. And I th- couldn't, couldn't help but think, like, how could this happen? Why did it take so long? Why did it take so long? Because if you take into consideration the fact that this place was realized, this was built in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. right? And the whistle wasn't blown, so to speak, until like the mid 60s, right? Wow, what happened? And then I thought to myself, it's like, well, what else happened during that time period? You know, and the gears start turning and it's like the civil rights movement, you know, the feminist movement, Mm -hmm. the Vietnam War, you know, um, stuff that happened. The Cold War. The Cold War. Stuff that happened, you know, five to ten years prior to this, five to ten years, you know, after this. And I think when society is focused or it's brought to light that there is injustice, you know, even if the injustice is in some other sort of situation, you know, whether it's racism or whether it's sexism, Mm -hmm. you know, fill in the variable Mm -hmm. that you start to see it, you know, in other, in other areas, in other places. So when I think to myself, like, why did it take this long? Part of me also thinks it had to take this long. If that makes any sense, yeah. we, we so as a country yeah. weren't ready. We were not sophisticated. Uh, maybe that's the right, wrong word. Not sophisticated. Just we weren't ready. enlightened enough. Maybe yeah. right. Uh, it's, think of it like when you get a new car and you go, "Yeah, I got this awesome car." And yeah. You go, Wait a minute. They have that car too. Hey, they have that car too. They have that car too. Everybody has the same car mm-hmm. as you because you're seeing it. You know what it looks like. Mm-hmm. You, and yeah, that's exactly what you're saying. With everything, we're seeing we're seeing all of these other atrocities go around, and now we're finally seeing it in the backyard. Or I think about like Laura's um, prior quote or saying, you know, at where she works, where it's like, you know, when you know better, do you better. Do better. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know better until we saw mm-hmm. until other things were unraveling. Mm-hmm. But the worst part is we didn't do better initially. We fought to no, do better. No, we didn't. You know, which is so upsetting. It's like the state appeals this case. So to move forward a little bit, you know, you mentioned that Broderick, like, is like, this is disgusting. How dare oh, yeah. you? He he was very um, inflammatory towards the towards Penshurst. Well, that's a good and way so, to put it. Yeah. <laughs> he was a little upset. Just a little. Um, so then it gets appealed for a decade. And as it goes to the Court of Appeals, there are changes that happen and it gets knocked back and knocked back and knocked back. Oh, yeah. And the amount of docket entries on this is ridiculous. 2,192 different yeah. docket entries. Yeah. So at the end, he says, because he was actually really upset when it goes through all the appeals, in an opinion in 1985, about halfway through the proceedings, he said, no one anticipated that this civil action commenced on May 30th, 1974, would be actively litigated for more than 10 years, requiring 2,192 docket entries, about 500 court orders, 28 published opinions, and three arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court. Isn't it embarrassing that it took us, we did all that to stop this from, like, I don't understand, like, don't you want to stop Penhurst? Don't you want to, like, maybe it's my ethics coming through and I apologize to be preachy, but why are we fighting something when we know that it's wrong? Is it just cost or do you really think that they're less than you? I, oh, my my brain. I hate to say it, but... (sighs) The other thing that we have to bear in mind, you know, that you're you're talking about, like, all of these children and people who are living there, I mean, over 2,000 of them, they all had families 
who left them there and did not come back and did not care and did not Mm. fight for them. And that is maybe the more disturbing thing because you're talking about the the administration and and the workers, which is true. And it is kind of like, how how can you do that every day? But we are ignoring these families who. Right. (sighs) But how many of them do you think thought that they were doing the right thing and making them go to a better place? Well, sure. It was it was all about just the culture of the time, right? For a lot of it, how many people do you think, if they knew that these atrocities were going to happen, they would have let that happen to their relatives? Well, you, but there I'm are. I'm sure there are. There a bunch. are tons of stories of I'm sure people who drop their kid off and come back a month later, and they're bruised and cut and no longer speaking, and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't say they take them home. No. Yeah, <laughs> right. No. But how many right. of them were actually actually allowed to take them home? Because some of these places That's wouldn't true. allow you to take well, they were involuntarily because... there, right. there was one story i read of a boy who was so drugged he didn't recognize his mother you know i mean but that's the thing like if i'm what that kid's have? mother uh i could look for that story again because sometimes i'd like to be like that i i don't know if it said i don't think that it did say but i'll look i'm telling <laughs> You're telling on my mom. Yeah, yep. We oh my god. She's gonna mom. she's gonna break another wooden spoon over my butt. <laughs> Good. Has it been like but that I feel since? Like this is supposed to be about ghosts, but I don't. I'm. Not, well, this I, is haunting. Yeah, I want yeah. yeah. ghosts as scary as society as a whole. You know what I mean? Like this is to me the horrifying More part. Horrifying, Do you ever yeah. think though that like we in some ways we haven't evolved? Maybe it's a different subject in a manner of speaking. Like, for example, as people get older, I think there is something to be said about elder care, you know, and what we're going to do with our elderly population. And obviously, if it weren't a thing, then there wouldn't be like elder care law and attorneys that specialize, specialize in their, in those rights, you know, and I'm afraid I am, I don't know that, you know the like i said the subject has changed and maybe it's not necessarily children for the 21st century but it is this growing elderly population that's true i mean like where do we see history repeating ourselves and maybe that is something that we need to take away from these sorts of conversations because because if we don't learn from it or maybe we learn to a certain degree but we don't learn enough do you know what I mean to say? Like, yeah. maybe we think to ourselves, um, oh, we'll never let this happen to children again. We'll never let this happen. Mm-hmm. But, like, do we, could we possibly forget that we could let it happen to somebody and else? I feel like that's what, that was, what was commented in the Penhurst movie is these places are slowly coming back. If it's a real institution where they're learning how to, like, take care of themselves and learning basic, you know, money budgeting and whatnot, with the idea of them actually being exited from those services and living fulfilling lives, then yes, I'm all for it. I understand life skills. I'm a teacher, you know. There is going to be said for teaching that kind of stuff. Anybody can learn something, you know. I'm a teacher. I truly believe that. But when you hear that these places are coming back, I just really hope that it's not like privately funded and they're just doing it to make money. I want to know if these kids right. are actually getting something. And like you said, Ray, that it's now shifting. You think it's shifting now to, to elder think, elder well, care. I, I think it's a possibility. I and think that it's, is a, a, big it's a consideration. And you got to take a look at uh, just the way that let's take the United States as a whole, for example, uh-huh. how we fought wars. You know, we were the big one on top at the end of World War II, and then we had a quagmire known as, uh, what was that, uh, the Korean War, and then we had that colossal screw-up of Vietnam, 
and you're seeing the same thing again and again and again and again and again, and we keep screwing up, and we've been doing it recently as well with Afghanistan and everything. And well, yeah, that's that, history. Like, war can't, like, you can't win war anymore from what people are saying. No, There's... and that's the thing. And it, it, it that started back in the 60s with mm-hmm. Vietnam. You're mm-hmm. seeing the whole thing happen again, whereas it's not that we aren't learning and letting history repeat itself as we are learning, but the situation has changed to the point where it's the same lessons being taught, but with different variables. So for this, we've got children for the next thing that it could be is the elder abuse. Mm -hmm. What's it going to be after elder abuse? So we're still seeing the same lessons being taught. We are learning the lessons, and now we're just going, oh, well, we learned our lesson on this one. Who else can we abuse yeah. this time? We have the, to reevaluate our Dunbar. Shifting, that's all. That's right. Mm-hmm. It just keeps going yeah. from place to place. Like, I've worked at two alternative education schools, and they're privately run, and the people who work there are fantastic, but there are no resources at all. There were no textbooks. All right. the chairs were half broken and, you know, no technology at all. Well, like... And something else, too, that I just thought about. And I mentioned that the one place that he worked, there were times when he would say, hey, I can't come home yet. I'm stuck here till the parents get here. And the parents would literally like roll in around five, six o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. The school day ended at like two thirty, three o'clock. But my husband was there not getting paid, stuck there for an extra three hours because the parents didn't feel like coming yeah. up, picking their kid up. Yeah, the kid had a meltdown at two thirty, couldn't get on the bus, and so we had to keep the kid because he wasn't safe. Uh, that kind of deal. Um, and that's another thing where behavior kids were put in the same and are still being put in the same institution as kids with autism and you know mental handicaps, and uh, it's just. You know, and again, it's because we don't know where else to put them. So let's just put them all together. You know, and PJ's an example of someone who was not doing an adequate job. He was going above and beyond. He was not getting paid to stay there. But you're not mm-hmm. going to leave a child with those issues by themselves until the parents mm-hmm. show up. Mm-hmm. The parents are the ones with the problem there. Come get your kid. It is not PJ's job to stay there because he cared. He did. Mm-hmm. Yep. Legally speaking, he did. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't going to mess that up. <laughs> So, I mean, I guess the overall question is, are we worried about being adequate or do we actually want to be, you know, not, I I don't even say like reactive. We want to be proactive, right? We need to be proactive in the future of aging population. Not, don't be reactive. Don't Mm -hmm. wait for the next Pennhurst expose to help elder care. Look into your grandparents right now. See what's happening at their, their facilities. Don't just go on visiting day when they've been washed up and dressed in nice clothes. Visit randomly. And we just learned today that apparently the average cost of being in a nursing home is $12,000 a month per, per person. person. So my thought is if you're getting paid, if you're paying that I kind mean, of money. Any of us even make that? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, like if you think about it, that's $144,000 a year. I should be if in a you palace. Have two parents, Shoot. it's um, $288,000 a year. Guys, you're a lot better off just putting them in an apartment in Los Angeles. I would. It's a lot cheaper. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's all, it almost Get a makes cruise. sense. Yes, I was going to say at least they'd be entertained. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, so, I, take I mean, that job. so I'm sorry, Laura. Did you find the story? Open bar. Yeah. I mean, wait. Sorry. So Laura has that story she wants to share. Yeah. Well, that, I found like a whole long string of stories. To Tell be us your story. I mean, yes. I'll, I'll just do, go through a few. Now, the first one I did mention. It does not say what was. Um, what his issues were, but he was admitted at the age of nine 
and he was placed on a ward with 45 other residents. His parents visited him two and a half weeks after his admission and found he was badly bruised, his mouth was cut, he was heavily drugged, and he did not recognize his mother. On this visit, their last name were the Heights, the Heights observed 25 residents walking the ward naked. Others were only partially dressed. During the short period of time, Robert had lost skills he had possessed prior to his admission. The Heights actually did re promptly remove Robert from the institution, with Mrs. Height commenting that she wouldn't leave a dog in conditions like that. Mm. So, Ray, yeah. do you want to read this next one here? Mm. About, About George? Plains of George, Sorodos. Sorodos entered Penhurst in 1970 at the age of seven. In the seven years that George has been at Penhurst, so like at this point he would have been 14. 14, yeah. His former foster mother, Marianne Caronfa, testified that in her weekly visits to Penhurst, there have been only four occasions when George was not injured. Oh Yikes. my gosh. She Weekly seven. visits for seven years, seven. only four so times. What, do you guys want to hear what he suffered? Oh. Numerous reported injuries. Well, obviously. Yes. Bites. Was scratches. it violence and abuse? Yes, it was. And, I know. Uh -huh. and, uh, An injury. <laughs> An injury. God, it's, I can't stand the sameness. Uh. <laughs> Scratches, black eyes, and loss of teeth. Loss of teeth. Yep. Remember if they she fall and hurt themselves to get yeah, them plucked out. She also right. testified that she recently observed what appeared to be cigarette burns on George. Do you know what that means, though? Like, if you think about it, um, uh, when you think about folks that smoke, like cigarettes, it's it's almost like a leisure activity. You think about, like, you've heard cigarette break, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're so it's almost like something you do it, well in a group I guess recreationally but it's something that you do to relax. So yeah. dot 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 think about like the abusers this is just me maybe I'm going off on like a weird like direction. Well, in this time period though people were smoking it was everywhere. Yeah, yeah, but you still oh, yeah. did it you yeah. you still did it to enjoy it. Like yeah. you didn't yeah. do it. It was to take it an was edge off. Yeah. It was still to take an yeah. edge off. So this is part of like a release. I think that's pretty much the case, regardless of where smoking started in history. It was something that you did. Well, smoking started recreationally, but it was also more of a spiritual thing. It was if you're the Native take Americans. The natives, yeah. Either way, it was not work related. It was no. Do you know how hard it is to grow that stuff? <laughs> It was not work related. Wait, you wait, know, what are like, we growing? Unless, Hold up, tobacco? Okay. <laughs> unless you're but that legal. type of multitasker, you know what I mean? Right. Like if you are if you are torturing somebody while like smoking, I would surmise that you're finding some sort of enjoyment oh, or yeah. relax or, or something. It's it's a parallel. You're just getting into KGB territory. Tell me what they don't know. No, Stephen Burn. Oh crap, I got mm -hmm. the line again. Well, I, you know, I do think, and having read um, Nellie Bly's 10 Days in a Madhouse, I personally believe, not all of them, of course, but I think that the majority of the people who were working at Penhurst or in similar places um, really do lose their their humanity, mm -hmm. at least for the people they're supposed to be caring for. Please, they do yeah. see them as less than human. They, they just... They they clearly do not treat them with any I dignity mean, right. or compassion. Well, Has, look at in our our history uh, of Black Americans. Same thing. You need to see them as subhuman, or else what you're doing is unconscionable. Yeah. So you have to tell yourself, "I'm doing this to someone who is not totally human." Same with uh, soldiers working Nazi prison yep. camps. Exactly. 
What what happens though when you get to the point, so to like when you almost like enjoy it? You know what I mean? Like psychopaths, yeah. Well, no, but if you think about it, there are instances just mental training and like like reprogramming your brain. Reprogramming, I think, is the right way way to put it. Like, and you see that reprogramming anytime there's like you know abuse inflicted on a Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. So other stories we have, PJ? Uh, This one says, um, Plaintiffs Larry and Kenny Taylor entered Penhurst on February 28, 1961. In the early 1970s, Mrs. Taylor questioned the staff uh, staff about the medication being given to Larry. He was very lethargic, falling asleep at school and barely able to walk. The physician in charge of Larry's unit checked Larry's medical record and found that he was on Dilantin, a drug used to control epileptic seizures. Um, Angie, Dilantin, is that still a thing? And is it used for epilepsy? Okay. Seizure control, okay. Angie's here, and she knows all about medicine because that's she's, her job. She's my drug dealer. Yeah. Legal. Legal. Legal drug, drug dealer. dealer. Educated. Educated drug dealer. <laughs> she's a pharmacist? She, uh, she pharmacist works at a pharmacy. Assistant? Oh, nice. Assistant, yeah. Assistant, oh, cool. yeah. So continue. The physician... <laughs> The physician, I, I thought of Arrested Development. I was just happy because we have Angie, who is our resident expert on or, uh, the office, drugs. I mean. Not, not. So Dilantin. Assistant to the regional manager. Assistant to the regional, yeah. The physician in charge of Larry's unit checked Larry's medical record and found that he was on Dilantin, a drug used to control epileptic, epileptic seizures. Mrs. Taylor testified that Larry had had only one seizure that she knew of, and that was when he was a baby. Larry re- was removed from Dilantin and placed on Melaril, a psychotropic drug. This, too, made him lethargic. Larry and Kenny were transferred to Woodhaven in 1975, where Mrs. Taylor testified that Larry does not receive any psychotropic medication and is able to walk independently. Larry was often injured while at Penhurst. On one occasion, he was hospitalized for two weeks because of the head and face injuries he received as a result of a beating by another resident. Kenny, too, suffered serious injuries while at Penhurst. And so notice that she voluntarily takes them to Penhurst after the expose. It says in the 1970s. So that's just, if I'm watching that expose, none of my kids are ever going to When did the expose come out? 1968. So, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did so the they're math. in there before the expose. No, she said 1971. She checked his medical. Oh, but they. She checked them off. in the late 60s. Yeah. Well, still. Or early 60s. Dan's reading it. Dan. What? Oh, never mind. Oh, I think you're another one. <laughs> it's yeah, okay. She, she got another one. <laughs> it's okay. But like the idea of that, and then the the massive amounts of drugs you're putting these kids on. Yeah. Especially when a lot of babies have febrile seizures. Sophie had one when she remember that febrile seizures. So just because she had one when she had a really high fever doesn't mean that she's going to need to take epileptic medicine later. You're just controlling a child that way. Yeah. I mean, well, we read it earlier in the court case, and that's just one example, I'm sure. One example. Of how they used it for control and not for treatment. Even the Penhurst movie, they said, oh, yeah, lots of drugs up there. Lots of drugs. Go ahead, Dan. So we've got uh, another plaintiff here. This was Nancy Beth Bowman. She entered Penhurst at the age of 10 in 1961. She was placed on a large ward, which had about 65 residents and often only two child care aides in attendance. Two child care aides out of a ward of 65 residents. Um, can I just say, fun fact, that's what most schools do. I know. But not all but of our students have special it needs. It gets right. better. It gets better. And by better, I mean... Holy crap. Uh, During her residency at Penhurst, she started to develop male adaptive behavior, i.e. biting and pushing. 
and as a result of this maladapted behavior, she was placed in seclusion for days at a time. So while she was at Penhurst, she lost teeth. Mm -hmm. Wow. There's more of a running uh, theme here. Pull the teeth Badly bruised, and she was also abused by the staff. When asked about her present physical condition, Nancy Beth's mother replied, Nancy Beth will be scarred for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. How ridiculous is this? Yeah, it just, it just keeps going. Just it keeps going. Oh, there are more. Yeah. There oh, are more. Oh. That, that was just one, and yeah. that was just a tiny little blip. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the thing is, I think it's really easy for us to say, oh, you know, they were beaten and it's awful. But the, I think the reality is, like, I've never been beaten in my life. And poor Ray, just a couple weeks ago, fell and separated his shoulder. Don't laugh Ouch. at him. <laughs> so, but you even made the comment, Ray, after it happened, like, a few days later and how much pain you were in. And, and you were like, I don't know how... People like who are boxers or battered, you know, like the children that suffer abuse. I don't know how they handle it. Yeah. He accidentally fell and really did hurt himself. But like, you know, imagine like being a boxer or something like somebody, you know, really hits you. Taking those, those smacks all the time. And you get up and you you get it again and then you do it the next night. Right. And And, here are little kids. Right. And not just that, but boxers tend to, uh, after the development of the super padded glove, they tend to get punched in the face repeatedly. And that's why you see boxers that have uh, that are slow when it comes, you know, mentally. It's because they're taking they're taking they're so much concussions damage. Yeah, every they're day. Concuss- yeah. Constantly. Yeah. Uh, back in, you know, the day of fisticuffs, bare knuckle boxing, you were an idiot if you went for somebody's face. Yeah. You're gonna cut up your hands, you mm-hmm. might break their teeth, but that tooth is now embedded in your hand. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know. Um, so that was more of like body shots and even body Mm -hmm. shots are going to leave a lot of, uh, damage. And these are guys that are physically adapted to take this kind of beating. Imagine what it does to somebody that just, I don't know, Ray, I think we could turn you into a boxer yet. But no, no, but you're absolutely right. You know, and, and it is, it's, it's, it's easy. I think, well, not easy, but it, it, I don't know that we all are really like thinking about like how awful it truly is to be beaten and to know right. that it could happen at any because time. it's something that normally doesn't right. happen. So you're not going right. to think about it, especially if you know it happening to you when you've never encountered anything like that before. Now I never was, you know, I was disciplined as a kid. So yeah, I get that. Yeah. But that's, but, I think that's different. Yeah. You no, know, it's a lot different. Yeah. It's a hell of a lot different. Oh, yeah. You know, you get disciplined, your parents aren't going to intentionally leave you with bruises. Yeah. Yeah. Losing teeth and, yeah. No, because that costs more money. You know (laughs) what I'm saying? So it looks like, Shanna, you have one there? I do. Actually, I'm going to read two things because it actually is into our last court case. Then we can head into the rest of our story. So the first one is Plaintiff Linda Taub, who was blind in addition to being retarded, was admitted to Penhurst in 1966 at the age of 15. According to her father, during her nine-year residency at Penhurst, Linda received only custodial care and she experienced regression rather than growth. Time on the ward was spent sitting and rocking with few activities. During one of their visits in 1968, Linda's parents found Linda, a person capable of walking, strapped to a wheelchair by a straitjacket. A staff member explained that by strapping her to the chair, they would know exactly where Linda was. While at the institution, Linda was badly bruised and scarred. Okay. 
couple comments. Nine years, and the parents are clearly visiting with apparently no intention of helping, taking her out, any of that. The other thing that I'll mention is, I know this is going to shock everyone in the room. I have been in a straight jacket. <laughs> no, I really have. It was <laughs> honestly, I'm not surprised. I, I know, I know. No, no one is surprised. I really no. wish I would. I was put in this. one in college. I think there's one of our psych class. Maybe it was our my ed psych class to showcase what yeah. it was like to be in it and how uncomfortable it is, it is. and how you sweat, like because it's so warm right. yeah. and it's terrifying. It was to teach us to not do that. Yeah, right. And the straight jackets aren't meant to be bound tight. If you use the straight jacket properly. It is just to make sure that your your arms hug your body so you mm-hmm. can't do any physical harm to yourself or anybody else. But the way that it appears that they're being used at Penhurst and where a lot of asylums during this period were being used is they're being extremely constrictive mm-hmm. and they're not allowing you the full mobility that a straitjacket should give you. And it if used properly, should give you. Yeah. Um, if you see a lot of magicians saying that I can escape from this straitjacket, that's because they're using the straitjacket properly. And all they have to do is manipulate their arm a little bit so they can wiggle themselves out. That's how it's supposed to be. Right. Because the idea is, like, it's supposed to calm you down. That's right. right? Yeah. It's like you, the you idea of a weighted blanket. Yeah. Dogs have that wrap you put around their, their yeah. middles and it calms right. them down. So I just you mentioned the whole nine year stay. That means that she was twenty four, right? Which is important for this last one that I want to read because it leads into um, our final most important court case. It says approximately twenty one of the forty five living units at Penhurst are locked to prevent individuals from leaving their units. Those individuals over the age of eighteen who have been voluntarily admitted to Penhurst are theoretically free to leave the institution at any time. Those admitted on the petition of their parents are informed by their caseworker when they reach the age of 18 that they do not have to remain at Penhurst. If the residents state that they wish to leave the institution and the staff determines that there is no place for them in the community or believes that the individuals are not ready to go into the community, the staff will petition the courts to have the individuals committed to the institution by a court. So that's interesting. Talk about not voluntary. Sure. And right. why? They're already overcrowded. I don't understand. Like, you don't have the staff. You don't have the space. You don't have the compassion. I mean, I get that these people are bringing in dollars, but but why? Right. <laughs> but see, that's the thing. That that was the, the last part oh. you had there. It, it's about the funding. It's the dollars. So if you start losing your patience and if you start losing things that you, as a state... Uh, as a state government, you say, well, why aren't you bringing this many people in? Well, we're going to cut your funding now because you don't need it, apparently. And that's not the case, but that's how things are going to be seen. And we can see it in schools all the time. Well, and that's mentioned in schools. So the last part here says, thus the notion of voluntariness in connection with admission, as well as in connection with the right to leave Penhurst, is an illusory concept. Few of any residents now have, nor did they have at the time of their admission, any adequate alternative to their institutionalization. As a practical matter, Penhurst was and is their only alternative. Nearly all the parents of Penhurst residents who testified stated that they placed their children in Penhurst only as a last resort. And had there been community facilities or aid programs, their children would not have been placed at Penhurst. And so, again, the easy fix is then to have FAPE, right? But this class action lawsuit, which comes after 
um, right to education takes another 10 years before right. anything is finalized. And what happens is I think Pennhurst settles, right? They kind of just give up yeah, finally. Yeah, Pen Pennhurst they finally settle. settles. So before we get into the last uh, court case, yeah, I just want to read this one thing here quick. Mm -hmm. This is um, a study done by James Conroy. He was oh, the director of research. Of Temple the, University. Yeah, the mm -hmm. yeah, Temple University Developmental Dis uh, Disability Center. Uh, he says that the former Pennhurst residents showed significantly faster development growth in the community than they had at Pennhurst. They received more services and more program time at less cost to public dollars. So you're already seeing something that would have made the state happy as hell. Mm -hmm. We can help these people. They're getting a better education in the way of functionality at a lesser cost. And it leads me to believe that they want to keep Penhurst open, at least people working there, because right. they're so getting they paid well. so they can continue to get the money. Mm -hmm. That's Sorry, that seems dark, but yeah. So he also goes on to say, prior to the transfer of the residents from Penhurst, over 60% of the families surveyed had opposed the transfer. Six months later, the same families overwhelmingly approved of this decision because now they're seeing all of the things that are going on. Mm -hmm. Measured by a variety of standards, the families generally perceived the happiness of their relatives to be much greater in this community than they were at the community of Penhurst. Yep. Yeah. So, holy crap. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to make a note in here as well that these stories are from the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance at preservepenhurst.org. And you can also... Uh, access the complete transcripts from the Halderman versus Penhurst case. So mm -hmm. anyone who's really interested in the deep dive, it's <laughs> out there. Yep. Well, and if you go on to, um, it's called Legal L Eagle. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think of Legal Eagle on YouTube. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, but they have pretty much any court case, any court case that's out there legally has to be online for access. Right. So you'll find all of this. Um, if you want to go into more detail and uh, the site that I found this stuff on, I have up right now, is called mm -hmm. disabilityjustice.org. I love disability mm -hmm. justice. I, I noticed you're on the same website because yeah. everything you're pulling, I was like, oh, I know where you got yeah. that. So <laughs> this has all three cases. Mm -hmm. And there's a really good video on there, too, that showcases just the growth of special education. I it's amazing. Take, I didn't look at that, but I did see that. Um, yeah, and uh, this site just has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to not just these particular cases, but all the cases that came after this. And I think you, you're truly horrified to learn some of the information there, but I think they're a little more polite in their uh, take. They are. <laughs> I think they're very tasteful when it comes yes. to giving you all of the information without... Um, all the unsavory. Yeah, without yeah. all the unsavory. But bits. I think we need some of the unsavory so we know not to do this in the future. Mm -hmm. So the last one I want to mention is you can actually find the entirety of this court case on Oyez.org. Again, there all these court cases are out there. And it's Youngberg versus Romeo. Youngberg was the superintendent of Pennhurst during the time that Romeo, the incompetent, to use quotes from that, um, was institutionalized there. So it this was argued in 1983, January 11th, actually. So a day before my birthday. <laughs> But, you know, five years before I was born, 1982. And uh, it was decided in June of 1982. So Nicholas Romeo was a 33-year-old man with the mental capacity of an 18-month-old child. So, you know, definitely. How, say that again? How old was he? He was 33 years old and had the mental capacity of an 18-month-old child. 
Yeah. So we're talking extreme um, issues. Following the death of his father, Romeo's mother was unable to adequately care for Romeo and had him involuntarily committed to Penhurst State School and Hospital on a permanent basis. So she didn't want to, but it was involuntarily forced. Okay. Um, during his time in the state facility, he suffered injuries on numerous occasions and was physically restrained at times. Now, his mom is the one who actually brings the court case there because he cannot um, do it on his own. Again, he had, would have been labeled incompetent, to put that in air quotes. Um, she claimed that his treatment violated the protections of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment and the prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment in the 8th Amendment. Specifically, Romeo's mother claimed Romeo had the right to safe conditions of confinement, freedom from bodily restraints, and access to habilitation, training, or treatment with the goal of eventual release. So you think this seems like a slam dunk case, especially after right to education and the Pennhurst civil lawsuit. Who do you think wins? In 1982, who do you think wins? Well, judging by the tone of your voice, it's definitely going to be Penhurst. It's going to be Penhurst. Um, yes. Do you want to know why? That's the, see, this is the thing that – oh, go ahead. Why? Because the court instructed the jury that they could only find that Penhurst violated Romeo's constitutional rights if the officials had been, quote, deliberately indifferent to Romeo's medical and psychological needs. Right. But see, the exact same things were brought up in the prior case. And none of that was put in. So whoever oversaw that, and I know it wasn't the judge before because he had said he that had he, his own wanted, feelings. he wanted to make sure that he had overseen everything that went through based uh, – that was coming through Penhurst, and they denied him mm -hmm. because he wanted to make sure that none of this happened again. And guess what? It happened again. Yeah. So – and that's the thing. Because they could not prove that the Penhurst professionals had been deliberately indifferent, they were trying to do their job adequately, to use keep using that word, um, <laughs> because that they found in favor of Penhurst. They tried because he also was involuntarily committed. When you're involuntarily committed, you lose a heck of a lot of rights. And so this obviously goes on appeal to the U.S. Courts of Appeals, right? And so the Court of Appeals held that the Eighth Amendment's prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment was inapplicable because he had been involuntarily committed. That only applies the punishment uh, to people who have been convicted of crimes. So if you're convicted of a crime, you get the Eighth Amendment. If you're involuntarily committed to a, an insane asylum, you lose that amendment. You lose that because you've been – because what happens is if you've been involuntary, involuntarily committed, they have to defer to the medical professionals. So mom doesn't get a say. He doesn't get a say. The medical professionals get the ultimate say. So where are the medical professionals? Because clearly they weren't there. <laughs> but they did say that under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, his rights had been um, taken away. So they end up winning because of the 14th Amendment, but not the 8th. I will just add that nowadays in modern day, it's it's relatively hard to be involuntary, involuntarily committed, that you have to be a danger to yourself or others. That's yes. And that's in some right. ways, that's actually can, can be a negative because yeah. there are yeah. people who really do need help, but you can't get them you can't help get because them they're help not they need. dangerous. They, they, well, that and because they outright fuse no matter what. Right. And fun fact, the Supreme Court also weighed in. They agreed that certain evidence had been improperly excluded. OK, so they and they said the jury had been instructed erroneously 
And the plaintiff had constitutionally protected interests in safety, non-restrictive confinement conditions, and habilitation. So he ends up winning in many ways. But again, he wasn't a danger to himself. He just had the mental capacity of an 18-month-old. Yep. So 1980s, again, we're talking that was 40 years ago because I'm 36 now. 41 years ago. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So in any case, those are the three landmark cases that make our current uh, world for special education. And I can say working in that world, and PJ can too, that a lot of good has come from it. You know, we are removing these terrible words and we're getting more diagnoses. Mm -hmm. We're learning the best ways to treat people. We're finding the best types of drugs that have the least amount of effects. We really are trying in a positive way. But then I worry about us slipping backward because of that comment made in the movie. So I feel like if we're going to end anywhere before we go into Kyle's thoughts, it's that we really need to focus on staying proactive and knowing what's happening because I cannot stress this enough as an educator. No, PJ stresses it too. FAPE stands for free and appropriate public education. Your child deserves to have an appropriate education, totally free, because you pay taxes. Mm-hmm. Emphasis on appropriate. Yes, appropriate. So you follow their LRE, their least restrictive environment. And that's why Chapter 14, so PJ's job, says that kids get special designed instruction on purpose to make that happen. They get a, a, a teacher like PJ, who's a special ed teacher, and they get the best help they can to meet those goals. And they also get transition to life after high school. Yep. Chapter 16 is me. I find that appropriate, the appropriate public education for kids who are gifted, so they're not being held back in the classroom, they can kind of advance forward and, and accelerate their education. But I do not give transition goals. Fun fact. Gifted still has a long ways to go in my mind because when you graduate high school, your GIEP does not follow you to college. Apparently, you're done being gifted at the age of 18 when you leave school. Well, yeah. Don't you know that? I guess. As soon as you go into you know the real world, nobody cares about you. But an IEP mm-hmm. follows you to college. Yep. You take you take your IEP. If you're if you're chapter 14, that goes to college. So you have the appropriate educational experience. And then after college. And after college. <laughs> no, after college there are <laughs> things that an IEP can get. Oh really? You. Yeah. Oh, and cool. there's programs, ARC or OR, like OR, OVR, OVR, occupational, vocational rehabilitation. See, I don't get that for my kids. Like if you um uh get all of your certifications in like auto mechanics and things like that mm. ovr can step in and buy you tools like all oh, a wow. full tool set to help you out and they wow. can they can help people get driver's licenses and all kinds of really cool stuff yeah so there's so many great. things yeah. out there that have come from this but they're not really i feel like we're pushing it more in schools now which is mm-hmm. great but it's even come since the 90s it's gotten better yeah yeah so we're let's keep being proactive. Push for gifted. Push for special ed. That's right. If it works with teenagers, zits, we can do it for our society too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what proactive, right? Is that what we're, we're talking about? Uh, <laughs> okay, that for, happened. For any of you who are listening and who got that, thank you. You're as old as we are. If not, I'm so it sorry. Still exists. Talk Does not a blemish on our podcast, Dan? Oh. <laughs> That was a good yeah, one. I like that. That was good. I liked it too. It made me smile. It, it uh, made me smile. I know. It was something. All right. Anyway, so with that in mind, let's move into creepy thoughts with Kyle. Mm-hmm. 
I think one of the people. I thought it would be a good idea if we turned Shannon into the the girl. I thought it would be a good idea if we. I thought I thought it would be a good idea. I thought I thought it would be a good idea. A good idea if we turned the the girl from Ringu. This is bad. This is really bad. It's a Ouija. Speaking of haunted houses, and the haunted house attraction at Penhurst. My thought is, what if a modern-day haunted house momentarily appeared in the same location or building in a past time period during some sort of weird space-time crossover event? Would the residents at that location, whether it be a mansion, an asylum, a prison, whatever... Would the residents at that location suddenly think that they were cursed and being plagued by witches and demons when here it's just a bunch of people running around in Halloween masks? That rates a 10 on the I has boogers scale. I love the I has boogers because we can't do oogie boogie. (laughs) She might want to blow his nose. (laughs) But... I wanted to make sure that has and boogers has Z's, not S's. It's very important. I has boogers. It makes me think of Torchwood, because uh, that show it has a couple ghost episodes, but it's always just timelines intermingling with each other, you know? And so they're haunting each other, but they're not actually haunting each other. It's just, you know, two timelines mixing in. Mixing and, in, right. right yeah, right. like there's the the first ghost episode where they're in a ho- an old hospital, and they cross over to when the hospital's like still in operation, and they see this ghost of a nurse walking up to them. She's like, "You're not supposed to be here." I mean, and oh, I remember that one. Yeah. Yes, yes, That's okay. A good one. But if you think about it, like the inverse could be just as probable. Like the folks from like the 21st century are mm-hmm. dressed up like goblins. If I were dressed up thinking <laughs> I'm having a good time and I see somebody that's dressed up from like what five six decades ago, that would creep me the heck out. Yeah. Right. It would just, yeah. Okay, yeah. what if no one at Penhurst was actually insane? What was happening was a parallel universe where all this haunted attractive trash was happening. And they're like, oh my gosh, I just saw a ghost. Oh no, Dan, you're just crazy. Here, have some more drugs. No, but I swear I saw somebody dressed up in a weird suit. And then 21st century, we're going on our little tour down the tunnels and boom. Dan pops up like, oh, gosh, it's a ghost. Well, anytime I appear, I usually scare people. So <laughs> you're okay with that. Parallel universe is happening. Nah, all I have to do is just show up. I scare people to work all the time. You scare me right now. Unintentionally. Yeah. Especially with the me in the suit thing. Yeah, that's like an everyday I'm glad occurrence. you didn't wear a suit this time, but I'm also glad that you're wearing clothes. Well, you know, I can't let myself hang out all the time. Oh, my. I'm glad for that, too, Dan. Well, you know, I thought you'd be the one who would, like, really appreciate, but, you know, it's all right. It's all right, right? Well, leave something to my imagination. Well, you know. <laughs> I've seen it all before. Yeah. I really well, haven't. Yeah. Don't worry, PJ. I really haven't. <laughs> Angie, I have. I swear I haven't, Angie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this took an awkward turn. This is the last time we asked Dan to hang out. Yeah, Dan, goodbye. <laughs> hang out. You have to use proper words. Dan, come over to be at our house and play board games. You have yeah. to word it correctly. <laughs> Because he takes hangout Certainly to a whole new level. Dan, come over and play with me. No, no. Oh, this seems much easier. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, we'll take that. <laughs> I'll take parallel universes. So basically, dress code is going to be on every invitation you issue from now on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't meet the dress code, we'll just figure you're a ghost. Yeah. Oh, okay. Hold can up. I, can I come in my long johns? Oh. 
I don't know. They're are they period tight, specific? So. Are they silver? Do they glow in the oh, dark? I mean, I don't have silver. Uh, I could get some silver. He's making a Long John Silver joke. The food. I, I know. Are you sure? He, he was playing the long. I haven't been to one in so long. <laughs> We're trying to. I didn't like their hush puppies. Oh, thanks. Trying to. I Thank you. Can't stand hush anyway, so back to Kyle's thought. So what do you think, Laura? I think that um, that it's a super creepy idea, you know, the, the idea of timelines colliding. I mean, it's uh, – there's – I think there's a lot of um, possibility for things like that. You know, we've – I heard a long time ago, um, this is way off topic, but I heard a long time ago um, some conspiracy theory that kind of made sense to me about aliens. And the theory is that the little green gray men, uh, you know, are actually humans in the future. And, you know, the fact that we have large eye or they have large eyes and big heads and no mouths and only like three digits on their hand is because they're in (laughs) right because they're in front of touch screens all day. So they need big eyes. They don't need mouths. They're just how did they eat? I don't I mean, I don't Uh, know all the science. (laughs) Actually, well, there's a new theory about that they are just robots. The greys. And it's other species that have made them and everything. And that's why they look the way they do. Well, that that could... I mean, I have no idea. But, you know, but the theory is if they are us in the future, it's us in like an alternative dimension. And Mm -hmm. then they've just figured out... Because in theory, actually traveling through dimensions would probably be easier than traveling light years through space. Yeah. Given the time. If we ever do a Skinwalker Ranch episode, like there's a lot of talk about just things appearing and disappearing in thin air. That's that's one I definitely like to talk with you about. So this is my podcast. (laughs) Talk with me over here. Don't don't look at PJ, me, hostess of the most ass. But you always shun me. Because you don't wear clothes. I'm sorry. I'm more because he wears clothes. Because he doesn't wear clothes. You said you wear clothes. Because you don't wear clothes. No, I, I talk I heard, fast. I heard the don't. Oh, okay, I didn't. I was confused. You don't listen to me. <laughs> so ultimately, my take is that I think it's super creepy. I think it's possible, and I think there could be a thinning of the veil, mm. as it were, in certain spaces. So, anyway, Ray. I could, I could buy that. Yeah, I could definitely buy that. I don't know what else to say. I mean, I'll I'll just reiterate. I think, like, you know, instead of creeping out the folks from the past, the folks from the future or from present day can be just as creeped out Mm -hmm. from the whole situation. Maybe they'll just end up scaring each other. (laughs) It makes for a really good haunted attraction. I know. Well, I think it adds a new level to the idea of, like, that residual (laughs) haunting as well. Yeah. Right. And not to be total nerdy geeky, but if you take string theory into account, then you're going to have overlapping strings, therefore overlapping, you know, times uh, and everything. Yeah. Just don't unravel yours. Because then you'll be like me. Like, let's just say it happened and there was like some sort of bend and like you're walking through present day and let's just say there are photo there's a photo or something like that and you like you see yourself in the background you know what i mean because yes. like there's a then I I'd don't like ask, that. I'd have, that to, I'd have to ask. That you, would be creepy. Did did you did you go to a certain hotel and is your name Jack? Or did you get lost on an island in the middle With of the With polar Pacific? bears. That's why I hate the whole I series. I don't know, guys. I'll have to ask my twin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
I, I, I loved that joke that I made for you the entire time that show was on. Guys, don't don't say anything. I didn't get to see the new episode of Lost. PJ, I saw the episode Lost last night. Don't say anything. You want to know what happens? They get lost. <laughs> oh, he got so mad. Uh, Every Monday. Um, Shut up, Dan. Every Monday. I'd high five you because I hated the show. <laughs> but I did appreciate the last season because I totally understood the last episode. I thought that was beautiful. Yep. So we'll give that to you. So I'm glad that this was Kyle's creepy thought because it leads right into our ghostly discussions then. So we've had all of this series discussing all the atrocities. There is no question in my mind that there is negative juju at that place. Oh, yeah. There are unmarked graves for crying out loud. Again, we don't know how many people died there, but at least half, according to the class action lawsuit, at least, I'm sorry, the, the right to education, at least half of the people who are in these state schools left because they died. That's how they got out of these places. Well, that's called graduation. Oh, boy. Anyway, so with that in mind, let's discuss the actual ghosts there. So um, there are two books. You can get them for $4 each. The digital versions on Amazon uh, through their Kindle app. And uh, uh, the author, Tamara Lawrence, works there at Penhurst during the um, Halloween events and everything. And at the beginning of every chapter, she does like a little history bit of Penhurst, which is really neat. Well, that is pretty cool. Uh, And... She talks about how in the first floor of the Mayflower building used to be part of, like, the ghost hunt and tour, but now it is a museum run by two former employees. And uh, she talked with them uh, one day. Well, first, uh, she talked with them. That was a different thing. But uh, um, so they run the museum. They kind of keep the history alive, which I appreciate. Oh, yeah. Uh, Especially considering, and we'll talk about, like, the fact that Penhurst now is like a sideshow attraction, you right. know. You have to have. Uh, it's you nice got to keep that, they, that reverence. Yeah, uh, but there's a, another woman who worked there, <coughs> who filmed a a pilot with Tamara Lawrence. Uh, the pilot never like got turned into a series or anything. It never aired, but um, she recognized Tamara and they talked. And she said she worked there in the seventies, and um, and Tamara asked her about the Mayflower building and all that and um and she said where did you work and tamara they're on the second floor because that's where tamara worked and this woman diane said oh, i worked on this floor and uh tamara says was it the male ward even then yes so tell me what was it like working with the men tell me about your what your day was like well i colored a lot you mean in coloring books yes it was something to do with them and they liked it they liked the art and making things So tell me about the third floor. Diane's countenance dimmed, she says. I never went up there. I think bad things happened up there. People would go up, and I'd not see them come back down. Oh, jeez. Really? Really? I heard all kinds of noises and yelling up there. It was scary at times. Uh, So that's just an interesting, you know, like another firsthand account from someone who worked there of... Something, and that wasn't even, like, the Quaker building, you know, yeah. which was considered the violent one. Well, right. the Mayflower building has been known to have lots of um, issues with ghosts. Um, according to Weird New Jersey, you can see shadow people there. EVPs have been captured. Investigators have been touched. Um, there are slamming doors, footsteps, vomiting sounds. There's also creepy music, Bach music, 
because, you know, why not? Uh, but according to LittleHouseOfHorrors.com, there's also a guy called The King in the boiler room of the Mayflower. He's a shadow figure who will touch you. He'll poke you. He's he'll a smoker. He'll choke you. You can smell cigar smoke. He's yeah. a smoker. What'd you get? Is he a midnight toker? Oh, my. I didn't oh. do that much research on him. Oh, so he's not playing his music in the sun. Wait, he's a smoker and a choker. He could be. And a choker. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't think the Steve Miller well, band talked about that. He does not like people. He'll tell you to, like, leave. Like, get out. Go and get. Apparently, especially, doesn't like women. Like, he'll push women and touch them. And mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he's a creeper. Friendly. He's a major creeper. And um, I did hear that there was a team of people from Ripley's, like, believe, believe it, or, it not. or not. Yeah. And um, they were there. And it was in the Mayflower building, and they thought they they were attributing it to this character, the king, mm-hmm. who was, I guess, a maintenance worker there in the 40s and 50s. Um, but they were the they were one of them who said, because this, I guess, happened multiple times. You mentioned the music box, mm-hmm. and they said that very loudly they could hear a music box music coming from the third floor, and so they went up and up. And as they approached and got to the top landing, it was getting louder. And then they got there and it went silent. And then later in the evening, they heard it again, but this time in the basement. And this is what I think why they were attributing it to this guy, the king, because um, that's supposedly his primary domain. Yeah. Boiler room. (laughs) Not creepy at all. (laughs) And so, but they hear this music box again and they go down. And as they get closer, it gets louder until they're there and then silence again. And the thing that really is weird to me, it's like, it feels like it's luring them. Yeah. It wants them to go somewhere and they're doing it. It happens right. a lot. Um, it makes me this... think of our house. We hear that ding, 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 mm. ding, ding, ding. No, thank you. The author, the author of this book. Uh, of both these books, um, they're called Ghosts of Mayflower. And uh, she talks about how her very first day, because, again, she's on the second floor, and her job was at the top of the steps leading to the second floor, people would come up, and she would greet them and then usher them <coughs> down the hall where they could, like, you know, look in the different rooms and take pictures, listen for things, you know, see if they get an experience. It was the only real haunted part about the entire evening if you bought a ticket there. I think with my research, the daytime tours are more historic. Yeah. Yeah, it's the evening that you'll have the haunted house attraction. Yeah, so, and she worked evenings um, because that's the only time Mayflower Building was open unless you got one of these daytime tours. But, um... Because, you know, you would go through these typical haunted house things with actors and props, and then you would end it in the Mayflower, where, you know, there were no props, you were just given a flashlight, and pushed into this building. And, uh, you know, there's... Here you go! Yeah, and there's a set path, like, just stay on the path, you can't turn back and go out the way you came, you have to keep moving forward through it. And, uh, so when they got to her, she'd be like, hi, you know, I'm, you know, welcome to the second floor, and move them down. And on her first night there... From the third floor, she heard a little child say, Mommy? (laughs) And, um, and everyone says, like, you don't, you don't go to the third floor. You just, you don't. And it was always sealed off from, guess it still is from what I've gathered, uh, 
So there are, what happens up? I need to know what happens on the third floor. And there, there are interesting, like, it's interesting. She, she and a lot of people would hear the sounds of wheelchairs rolling across the floor above them and footsteps and things like that. But no one with a wheelchair was allowed on the third floor because there weren't any elevators. Anyone wheelchair bound lived on the first floor. Uh, so that was just an interesting tidbit. Well, uh, according to the Penhurst Asylum Civil War Ghost website, they said that um, the sounds that you'll hear are children's crying and even laughter. Um, you can hear medical implements being moved about and you can hear the crash of rusted metal. So maybe it's that actually. Maybe maybe they're not hearing the wheels. Maybe they're hearing like mm-hmm. metal. If there was like electric shock therapy happening up there, they were put into chairs. You that know, definitely the- did. Um, so, so on the second floor, a lot of, a lot of the normal things, like things that were expected every night would be hair pulling, um, especially for females. Um, there was one ghost name who they all called the shadow man Mm -hmm. and he lived, he stayed, I should say in the common room where there are a lot of cabinets, a lot of chairs to sit in. You'd often see him just sitting in one of the, these rubber cushion chairs. Uh, but he liked picking on women. He would push them, pull their hair, things like that. Um, tapping on shoulders was a big one. There was a nurse, uh, and her big thing was she would jab people with needles. Oh, jeez. Uh, like, the the ghost, not, we, no one not knows, the, like, not who the, the real nurse was, but, right. like, a lot of people would be like, I know what a shot feels like. Yeah. Like, I just got a needle in the neck, or I got a needle in my leg, and they're like, this this just happened, and, you know, she'd hear someone yell down the hall, ow! And, <laughs> and she, there's one weekend where it happened, like, three times in one weekend. Oh, jeez. So... Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering if this is somebody that maybe even this the woman who wrote this book knows. Um, somebody posted on a Reddit here. Um, I've worked at Penhurst Asylum for three years. Are there any questions, paranormal or otherwise? And someone asks, "What is the most terrifying experience you've had?" And the the person that posted this said, "Well, my most terrifying experience was in the administration building. She said it was in the tunnels underneath mm, the tunnels." Now. It is what is now known as containment. There's a long hallway that is now a bunk hall. At the time, there was nothing in it except gurneys and old wheelchairs. I was uh, relieving someone for their break, and after they left, I stood in the middle of the hallway beside a gurney waiting for customers to come in. It was pumped full of fog so I could barely see, but I knew that I was the only one there. Well, about two minutes into being alone, I felt a huge hug on the back of my shirt, and it was enough to make me stumble backwards. I whipped around to see if there was anyone there, and there wasn't. When the person came back, I told her about it, and she let me know about the little girl who loves to play with people down there, and she was connected to one of those gurneys. Mm. So in her honor, she said she got a tattoo. so that's just yeah think about that if you're down there you know it's a it's a section that has a lot of stories to tell in Mm -hmm. and of itself and you hear all these stories and then you get a hug from behind fun fact the tunnels is part of the attraction for the haunted that's right and that's what this person was saying they were down there so they could relieve somebody else who was down there for break yeah, Tamara said um, there was often a little girl in a white dress in Mayflower. 
And uh, during a seance, someone got the name Mary from uh, the spirit they're talking to. So she, this girl now then took on the name Mary. Whether it was her name or not, yeah. Yes. Right. And uh, over the course of this season, um, you know, people were asking for Mary to come out and things like that. And she would... And she would encourage, she's like, yeah, there's a little girl named Mary up here, you know, and uh, so maybe Mary will make an appearance for you. And then one day, or one night, uh, someone asked, is Mary your friend? She's immediately just like, no. And she felt this horrible sense of, like, anger surround <laughs> her, and her he flashlight, her flashlight started to flicker, and for the rest <laughs> of the evening... Her flashlight was failing her, and she just felt this horrible sense of anger You're all around. You done messed up, Tamara. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, wrong line, honey. <laughs> Mary's your best friend. And she was one that, like, she had never seen for, uh, at least for the entirety of the first book. She talks about how she keeps seeing, like, all these people down the hall be like, there's a little girl there, and she'd run down the hall. She's like, where, where? And, oh, she's gone. (laughs) And she's like, I never saw Mary. (laughs) Mary doesn't exist. It's fake. Um, So I'm not sure how much of your research went to the Quaker building, but I have down that there are numerous shadows that manifest and dissipate at will there. The shadows um, include what appear to be a small female child with long black hair, a hunched over presence with long dangling arms and the upper portion of bodies looking over or around obstacles. Doors in a rocking chair have moved without anyone being near them. Um, one investigator was shoved from behind hard enough on a staircase to leave a deep red mark on the small of its, his back. An investigator was scratched on the arm by an unknown object. And then other objects have been propelled in the basement, such as a pry bar and then um, some brass fixtures and whatnot. Lots of um, EMF spikes and EVPs, too. That's just the Quaker building. Mm-hmm. A lot of bad stuff happened there, as we discussed last time. You don't really want to go to the Quaker building. Yeah, and isn't that the one that's that's usually filled with, with shadow people? Uh, that's also all, all, of, all them. of them are. But all of them are. Uh, Mayflower, the Mayflower yeah. is known for Mayflower shadow. Stuff yeah. happened in the Limerick building, too. Limerick building has yeah. the nurses. Um, well, it's interesting. The Limerick building, is that what you're going to read right now? Go ahead. No, go ahead. It's... Um, an apparition of woman in old nurse style nurse's uniform has mm-hmm. been there, and she's been seen by a firefighter, a police officer, and a marine, mm-hmm. which lends me to believe that it's legit because yeah. those people are pretty logical yeah. and straightforward. They're not gonna be like, yeah. "Oh yeah, I saw a ghost." No, listen, I saw a ghost. She was a nurse. Either that or she attracts men in uniforms. Yeah, it was a <laughs> to use your word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Mayflower is um, by far the most active, which is why the tour goes through that one. And why she was able to write two books on it. <laughs> well, yeah, if it has that kind of activity. Yeah. Uh, again, like, there's just so many things. Like, there's one where uh, they went up to the third floor because someone dropped their phone up there. And so oh. so they go up. It was one of uh, her kid's friends, I believe. And so they go up to the third floor to look for it. And then she hears one of her coworkers say, hurry up, they're coming. <laughs> and... They turn around. He's not there. And they later learn he wasn't even in the building. He was outside collecting flashlights from guests. No. <laughs> and so, mimic. Yeah. Yeah. There was a mimic in, I was gonna in say, the third floor. I familiar. Uh-huh. Lauren Ray. Uh-huh. You know, as I'm hearing this, though, I have to say I'm very grateful that 
we never had touching in the house mm. like that i think might have like that would have taken me to another yeah level it like yeah. literally pushed me Discomfort. over the edge she was yeah. already near bed so like i was I gonna say considering considering what you saw in the bed ray um yeah i mean technically laura i was i felt a presence i don't know if you you know do you know how it is where like you know somebody not, when you know you're when not somebody's alone? in the bed next to you right i mean like <laughs> it's happened to me so often <laughs> <laughs> um, are you talking you about know, me? You know, like we're not hopefully or else. <laughs> but I agree. If there was you know, you, touching, you, you're not no, okay you, with it. You know it. what I mean? Like, so, let's just say, you know, somebody's in the bed. Like, you feel like the the bed moves. Yeah, the, yeah, bed the pressure moves. on the bed. Mm-hmm. And, like yeah. the dynamics, so to speak, of that space change. Well, it's just like when you feel someone looking at you, you can feel them looking mm-hmm. at you. That was something else. Is uh. How she said, from her spot at the top of the stairs, there's um, there were several rooms, and they were called like, just cell one, cell two, and all that. And there was this entity in cell one, and it would just watch her. And she's like, I couldn't see anything, but I felt it mm. all the time. And his eyes were just always on me, and there was just this anger. And people would go in there and feel just cold spots on them, and just feel great sense of unease. Uh... There were uh, just like this, just this bad angry feel. I mean, when you get right down to it, <laughs> yeah. like sometimes you just need to inhale and exhale. There, there was one uh, time where they heard this loud bang, and a window was just thrown open, and so these uh, guests who just had an EVP recording going, they just, they said, "Why did you do that?" And on the recording, they got one word: cornered. Oh, jeez. <gasps> Jeez. Yeah. Oh, that just kind of breaks your heart, though. You yeah. Know? And there's a a toy plane, and it's Howie's plane, and you're not allowed okay. to touch Howie's plane, or else he'll get very angry. Well, don't touch Howie's plane. Dang and it. one night, That's Howie's simple. plane just disappeared, <gasps> and everyone's like, "Oh no! Did the did someone steal it?" Like the guests are always trying to take the plane. Oh, so did no. someone actually succeed? And they found it like up on top of like this crevice of a wall and everything. And, like so, how he was protecting, how he was his, protecting plane. his plane. <laughs> but then we, uh, I learned in later in the book that Howie was a real person, and she was talking to one of the former nurses there, and she said, "So tell me about the man who jumped out of a window." <laughs> and uh, she said, uh, "So she said, so tell me about the man who jumped out of a window." I said. Some people call him Howie. I wasn't sure if it was, in fact, if, if, if he was fact or fiction. It was said that the Fisher-Price airplane belonged to him. I don't think in life, but somehow in the afterlife. At least, that was the rumor. He was real, she said. But he wasn't in this building. He was in Quaker. Did he, oh, jeez. Did he really jump out a window? Yes, she replied. Howie was incredibly strong. He could rip a mattress with his bare hands. <sighs> wow. So you don't take that plane. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I filtered this as we moved towards the bed. The beds were hard rubber. It was incredible that a man had such strength. How he could bang on a screened window with his fist and pop it open. Then out the window he'd go. (laughs) So So this this was like a common occurrence for Howie. Sounds like it. Being able to just pop that window out. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, Howie. He should have just kept that plane 24-7. Yeah. Don't take it away. That's right. <laughs> Would you say he was a 
flight risk. And they said <laughs> flight, <laughs> flight horrible joke. They said Don't he would also me. pull the lights <laughs> we down. We are doing a really serious expose right now. <laughs> yeah. They said no, he would okay. also pull the lights down from the ceiling for heat. For heat. Yeah. The heat from the light bulb. Interesting. Do you mean as a spirit he would do this? Or no. A, no, no, no. As, as, as the oh, actual patient. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was oh, that so. cold in there then. I guess so. Oh, or the bulbs wow. were that hot. I mean, it was yeah. back in the day when you didn't have. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, you would have had. Well, but see, you wouldn't have needed to pull the lights down unless it was right. that bad. Yeah, it was still the the, the classic Edison it, bulbs. Yeah. So those yeah, things are meant to, yeah. yeah, they're meant to burn forever, yes. and they got hot. Sometimes I, th- I mean, I'm going off on a tangent, but sometimes I think about like theater back in the day. I mean, it must have been Ooh. so hot on stage. Okay, oh yeah, I can attest right now. Uh, with the current light situation, it's, still hot. it's ridiculously mm-hmm. hot, and those are LEDs, yeah. most of them. Oh, I misread. Yeah. Oh, he would just pull them down. Oh. He would oh. just pull them down. They had okay. little half walls that were for heat. But... Oh, okay. I was gonna yeah. say like yeah. it's that bad. Never mind. None of my research. Yeah, was I was cold. gonna say was it really <laughs> that you know cold? No. Nevertheless, stages back then were still hot. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Back to the important part here. I know, stages. I know. Like, <laughs> how about when they point. use fire for their lights because light bulbs oh, didn't exist? That's scary. <laughs> oh well, you know that's where you get the old limelight from. Uh-huh. I guess, but still, scary. it was the drop the chandelier and the phantom came. Oh, I've speaking of that, in the guise of the mask of the red death. Uh huh. So we have now gone into a whole different podcast. Yep. I appreciate all of this, though, by the way. We got some Poe. We got some good French going on here. Yep. Oh, no, that was all in. Musical theater. That, that was all in the, the story of the Phantom. Oh, I know. It's fantastic in the original French, too. Just saying. All right. Any more ghost stories? So I don't really have a ghost story, but I do have a question I'd like to pose to everyone. And my question is... Do we think that perhaps this was such a place of suffering that maybe it wasn't even so much the, like, obviously it had a negative energy, but, you know, in the years since, of course, it's been like graffiti central, people break Mm -hmm. in all the time Mm -hmm. and have for years, it was abandoned and all of that. Um, There's clearly all kinds of, uh, you know, like satanic images and things like that i'm sure people have gone in there with ouija boards and held oh, seances 100%. yeah like there, are, there are pentagrams painted right, on the walls right so my question is do we think that because of maybe that additional activity that that's like either opened a portal and it's made things worse it's focused the like negative a, energy a locus for nasty stuff. right you like know, yeah. i honestly think it's just bad and people who are drawing like the satanic symbols they don't like Kyle mentioned they don't know what they're doing they're just doing it because it's part Mm -hmm. of like a group kind of thing but as we've said that doesn't mean that it doesn't have consequences but when it comes to that whether excuse me whether you whatever religion you you know prescribe to when it comes right down to it if you believe in these symbols or don't believe in these symbols which for me I'm very much on the like in, even if you don't believe in ghosts or anything, you, you have to believe that there's some kind of residual energy that's still left, uh, negative energy that's still going to leave a huge impact. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the one theory that I had heard a while ago, which I think is probably the most apt way to describe a ghost sighting is maybe it's not a spirit maybe it's not an apparition maybe it's just you are seeing the effects of something that happened long ago that just the the energy was 
so deep rooted there that it's just going to continue to come back and forth. You're just going to see it again and again and again. And I feel that if you're going to disprove everything at Pennhurst, you can't deny the fact that there's a lot of negative stuff that's going on there. That's never going to leave whether it manifests itself in this or just everything that we know through the history, it's always going to be there. If it's not going to be a physical haunting, it is going to be a haunting on that building and in the history books forever. So you think mostly like residual? I think residual. So I don't think satanic or anything like that has anything to do with this. I think it's just a place of such pain and suffering that that's going to be associated with this place forever. You mean kind of like Gettysburg? Would yeah. You say? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. No, that I can I could buy that. I think the thing that makes me wonder about it are things like the shadow people because those, you know, the ones that interact. We may right. have lived with some shadow people in this house, right? So. I mean, and they're typically not just spirits, you know, according yeah. to what we kind of understand or think we understand. Right. Yeah. 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 It all depends on what they're doing, like the. The sounds of moaning in the distance, like, are probably residual. But then the person giving people injections in the hallway or, you know, Mary getting angry at someone for claiming she's not their friend. Like, that is something else. That's, you know, whatever it is, it's not a residual haunt at that point Mm -hmm. because it's interacting. It's understanding what's going on. It's very intelligent. Yeah, it's present. Yeah. It's present. There you go. I don't know if anybody heard me. I, I heard leaning. you. Ah! Yes. I was leaning. All the way from the back of the class. <laughs> I have a question. He speaks. But, yeah. uh, you know. Well, I think there's no question in my mind that this place is haunted. Like, I, I'm, I don't know about you guys, but, like, I'm just going to start off by saying I think this place is haunted, and I think that all the stuff that happened here has just made it a place that is just going to suck in more negative energy. So whether those shadow people are people who lived there before and are ghosts, or if it has attracted like some demonic, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Right. Right. And I, like I said, I don't, I don't prescribe to that. I don't think there's anything demonic about the place. I, I think that what's there is there. What's buried there is what's going to stay there forever. I guess you made the case, too, that the uh, some of the people who worked there were demonic and horrible. Mm-hmm. So maybe in the afterlife, they look that way. Maybe they've lost their identity because they are just, they were horrible. I hate to make maybe. that assumption. but I mean, it's possible. It's absolutely possible. We don't know anything about death. We haven't been there. Knock on wood. What do you think, Gray? I could buy that, actually. And I think that negative essence is just kind of like what permeates the... The premises. Mm-hmm. Huh. So much to think about. Would you buy that for a dollar? I, <laughs> if there's a return policy, maybe. <laughs> that, that dollar, he'll take you places. I don't know. Do you take cash? I, I, I'm, I'm just hoping that that reference did not get lost on you guys. Come on, RoboCop. Oh, no, we got it. Okay, good. It's been a while since I've seen RoboCop. A long while. All right. Because PJ just kind of gave me that, like, huh? We just want to stare at you because we can. All right. Anyway, Laura, Thanks. what are your thoughts? I tend to, I don't know. I, I do tend to, to think that um, the people playing around like with Ouija boards and seances and things like that can very much unknowingly uh, open gateways and they could be letting more things in than that were already there, you know, yeah. than what was already there. Um, you know, they, they may not be taking it home with them. It might They might just be opening that door and whatever is walking through is still hanging out there 
I think it's possible. I mean, it could be D, all of the above. Yeah. yeah. All know, the I'm above. Not, I'm not really ruling any of that out. Some of it could be residual. Some of it could be, you know, those... Intelligent. Like, well, I was going to say that horrible, the horrible employees that were just there. Right. You know, maybe those are the... Sh- because, like, they didn't die there, right? No. So maybe their I hope essence... They well, I mean, I all know. I'm saying is, like, their essence could still... Right. Do you ever feel like when something bad has happened, even, like... I'm trying to think of something that doesn't sound so like 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 if if there's been like a spat at home or something like that. Do you ever feel like there's something negative like in the air or whatever? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Or am I just being yeah? I'm not just being crazy, right? Like something, and it's not anything to this magnitude, but there's something you know sad or something like well, just even, not kind that maybe happened. Even. Uh... When we went to Gettysburg, every time we go to Gettysburg, yeah. and especially when we visit Devil's Den, uh-huh. that oh, area, like, you, f- it's, the air is heavy, you mm-hmm. know? It's, it has a really weird vibe. It's oppressive. Yeah. yeah. It's a good word for it. And when you leave out of there, you can breathe again. I'm not sure about you guys, but, like, I feel mm-hmm. like I can't breathe. It feels like I'm being smothered in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to laugh at you, Laura. I was just thinking you, you let something, I was just thinking of someone coming, oh, uh, hey, guys. Uh, can I can I hang hang out here with you guys? Uh, Someone open cause, the Ouija uh, board. Uh, we can cause some mischief, right? Yeah, no. Uh, I'll just hang out in the back. I got boogers. Oh wait. I has boogers. Sorry. Even if people are in the room, like let's just say you know there are two people in the room, and there's something about maybe it's a they could say nothing when you arrive, but there is something about the body language. There's something oh, in yeah. the air that makes you think. What's your fight or flight response responding then, to right, that? That right, non yeah right. that nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it could be just a little, I'm I'm going with I've changed my verdict. I'm thinking D all of the above. I think it's all the above, bit. yeah. PJ. Yeah, uh I definitely think there's something going on in this place. And I'm glad there's a museum portion of it. I just wish there was more emphasis on that compared to other everything else that's going yeah. on. I made sure to do research for that just because I had mentioned, like, I don't like the idea of the um, Mm -hmm. house traction. It really just hurts my soul to think about that going on. So I came with all the information that I could garner for tonight, which um, nothing points to, like, one answer here. So before I even begin reading, who here thinks that the haunted asylum, like, attraction should be allowed? Like, I I, in no way am I going to be offended. Who's okay with that? Uh, Half and half on me. Yeah. Where at one point, for one thing, it's like, yeah, because it helps get the word out about the place. And then it's like, oh, that's not really cool. It's not, not a kosher way and, to and do if it. You're, if you're a horror fan, what better place? Right. You know, like right. there is that side of it. Like, mm-hmm. I am a fan of horror, but at the same time, he's like, yeah. Oh, uh-huh. That just Let's doesn't not. feel good. I'm not saying yeah. that something can't happen. I think it all has to do with the delivery. Do you remember when we went to Savannah, mm-hmm. right, back a thousand years ago, and we <laughs> and we um had that one, and ever since her, nobody really compares to yeah. this to that ghost tour. She was and amazing. just the way that she delivered, it was just so matter of fact. She didn't rely on anything kitschy she didn't rely on anything campy it was you know, all there very was no, historical it, was it just felt very historical. very matter of fact you know and it was middle of the night truthful. you know which i thought fit the ambience yeah and that's okay too but you she know wasn't what I mean? dressed but, up in a, an attire mm-hmm. she didn't put on a character right no i wasn't here for this but from what pj has told me 
that's just the history taking care of itself. That's the history yeah. speaking for itself. Yeah, and I don't. Understand. And that's all you should need. Right. right. That's. I think that's the point that I was looking to make too. Like you don't need any of that. You can just kind of let it. You know. Speak for itself. Yeah. So with that in mind, I did again. I I did lots of research because I wanted to. I want to do this justifiably where I'm showing both sides, because um, I know that I have a bias towards the idea of not running the haunted house. So I didn't want to be the person. Hey, you guys, terrible thing to do here. Um, well, so, I am a terrible person, so we're okay. This with isn't that. about you though, Dan. This is about no. Anyway, so <laughs> the most recent article that I could find um, was actually from June of 2022. And the title of it from History at Work is called Who Should Tell the Story of the Penhurst Haunted Asylum and the Penhurst Museum in Public History. And so it goes over, you know, like I had looked up timelines too. like we know that this place was bought out. Sections of it has been bought because of monetary issues. So the Penhurst Haunted Asylum and the Penhurst Museum operated by Penhurst LLC in collaboration with the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance, also called PMPA, exist side by side on the grounds of the shuttered Penhurst State School and Hospital in Spring City, Pennsylvania. The sites might seem to have opposite goals, one to frighten and one to entertain, the other to educate about past wrongs. Over the last decade, however, the haunted attraction and the Penhurst Museum have become aligned in unexpected ways. New questions are being posed. Who should tell the story of Penhurst and how should they tell it? So we are in the background of Penhurst, what happened. And as I had mentioned to you, it was bought in 2008. A private development company called Penhurst LLC purchased uh, the major sites and they wanted to use it for the haunted asylum. They got a lot of flack for it but in 2010 they actually began doing their um their haunted house now fun fact pmpa did try to use legal efforts to stop the haunted house from happening but they lost because it's a private property now right um but yeah in 2000 uh, in 2010 uh the attraction grossed over two million dollars and it makes two million dollars at least per year just so you know. Now, the first year that they did the Haunted Asylum, it was as bad as you could imagine. Uh, so here's a fun fact of what it looked like. A fictional Dr. Chakikajan, I'm going to guess that's how you pronounce his last name, and his minions were shown experimenting on asylum inmates. In a minor nod to the history of Penhurst, patrons were able to view artifacts retrieved from the property, including the dentist chair and electroshock therapy machines. So that is what they did the first year. Obviously, that's very offensive. Yeah. Okay. Yep. A little bit. Yeah. Just a tad. So since then, um, the Penhurst LLC changed in ownership in 2017. And when that happened, the person who bought it out wanted to be more proactive with um, establishing and kind of maintaining the history of Penhurst, which I do appreciate because the new owner and general manager have personal connections to the disability community. So, and it does say here too, aware of the unintended consequences of a conflated story, they changed features of the attraction and empowered a group of disabled performers with creative control. This new haunted attraction deserves a second look. And so what has happened since 2017 is the disabled now are um, acting in this actively, which that's nice but i still think of we mentioned like last time the idea of like a circus sideshows you know yeah. are you really presenting history and making a great comment on what we could do and so you're showing the past but like don't let it happen again i'm all about that like again we need to be proactive 
but what are you actually showing then? And so the article then, if I flip forward, does go on and you see one of the major actresses here, she has a disability where her joints are very movable. So she can do all like the kind of cool contortions, mm -hmm. right? And so she um, really enjoys acting there. And she said to me, being on the site and performing and building a community as we have as we have has given the disabled population here the power back we have reclaimed the space and seek to perform educate and welcome others into it and so i don't want to say that it's inappropriate because obviously she feels empowered to do it but again like it really to me it still bothers me that you're doing it on a site where people died you don't see hillview manor doing haunted tours or doing like a haunted like you know mansion kind of thing at night I'm glad they're doing the historical walkthroughs in the daytime, but you could do that at nighttime as well and not have all the the kitschy stuff. They said you know? that they have ties to the community. Do you know like where the proceeds, if any of the proceeds go to? No, they just have ties in that either they are disabled or they have friends who are disabled. Okay. And so they wanted to make it a little more historical and not so, you know, 2010 embarrassing. Right. Do you know what they do with the... I mean, is the proceeds strictly for profit? I, does, it does says any of it, it go grosses to... $2 million per year. I could not find anything where the money was going back to anyone else. Because that... I don't know if that fully excuses it. I think that would make it a little more palatable. Yeah. Um, I know that it does say here that the Penhurst Museum was moved from the attraction space into a separate building. And then in 2020, PMPA did establish the Penhurst Memorial Fellowship to invite people back to kind of help find ways to make this place historical and right. keep it from crumbling. But those too are much. separate entities, right? But they're separate entities. entities. Yeah. Yeah. Do um, you know if um, Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance has made a comment on the LLC? So they actually have. I have it. But just, you know, um, you mentioned the the museum, PJ. It's actually in the Mayflower building. Yeah. Yeah, just so you know, like that's and that that's that like, museum mm -hmm. is very tiny. Yeah. Fun fact. But yeah. it's, it's only in the first three. floor and yeah. so, museums, you know, dedicated to disability history, their history of the disabled, right? So yeah, all I have is this is off of the Preserve Penhurst website. It says a statement regarding the Penhurst Haunted Asylum. PMPA is completely opposed to the operation of a haunted attraction at Penhurst that portrays people with disabilities in a demeaning and degrading fashion. Demonizing people with disabilities is a profit-making entertainment and is and should be offensive to everyone. We urge everyone to, who shares our disgust to speak out against the haunted asylum and boycott this travesty. Mm -hmm. They also have a petition you can sign. So that's on their website. Um, I wasn't sure if that was like old because in 2020 they started kind of working together with that fellowship. However, um, there are comments on here that are as, as recent as 11-8-2022, so just a couple months ago. Um, but someone here named Lisa Ray said, in, and this is in the comments, in 1979, I spent a weekend at Penhurst painting walls in different rooms and trying to add brightness to this horrid place. I saw things there that a haunted house should never duplicate and could never duplicate. All funds raised on these tours should be donated to Americans with Disabilities for care. God help them. And then another person named Sean Dolan said, I was a patient at Eastern State School and Hospital, a similar place located in Tre Trevos, PA. If all proceeds do not go to the people who languished here, then it ought to be closed permanently. They won't let the anguished energies there exist their rest. Let me know how I can be of any help. And there's a website here called escapeauthority.com and they reviewed the haunted house because like apparently that's what they do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I scroll down to the scares section and uh this is what they say about that 
So, because they love it, because, you know, they don't really, they're not really aware of the history of mm-hmm. Penhurst by the looks of it. Uh, they're just reviewing it as a haunted house. And right. so they say, let's start with the statement that in any other haunt review, this would absolutely be a negative, but not here. The actors throughout the asylum really don't try to scare you. They're not, quote, monsters. They're mental pa- patients. And they're absolute, they absolutely inhabit their roles so well that at times you might find yourself wondering if they're acting at all. Penhurst Asylum is overflowing with the criminally insane, and naturally, they're all loose. But rather than jumping out and yelling boo, like a cliche hon, every single one of these deranged inmates are fully in character. You may find one walking in circles, muttering to herself, or another quite literally talking to a wall. Some just stare at you. Some follow you, and yes, actively grab you. There's no longer any rules in this asylum, so consider your safety bubble of, well, they can't touch me, officially popped. Oh, yikes. And so I guess, like, that fits into the idea of the Uncanny Valley, where you feel uncomfortable because you're not used to that kind of situation. So someone's, like, walking in circles and muttering, that would be freaky. And it does put you back into the time of what it would have been like there. You know, like, why camera crew kept quitting when filming the expose and everything. But at the same time, it's, again, I said this in the last episode, too, it's bringing back that cliche that, like, insane asylums are, you know, places for, as they put it, deranged inmates and things like that. Right. And it's putting this horrible negative connotation on everything uh, where it should have been just a place to help people. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, it's it's twisted. Well, I think that ultimately it, it should have been a place to help people, but... It wasn't. It wasn't. And, and most yeah. places like that weren't. And, you know, even, you know, in that the book that I read, The Ten Days in a Madhouse from Nellie Bly, she talks about how people went in there sane and within a few months were broken mm-hmm. by the conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that is, I think, the really heartbreaking thing is that, you know, these sane people would go in and become deranged. And so maybe that's where some of that is like kind of worth preserving that like even us as tourists we go in for entertainment and we get so uncomfortable after just an hour or whatever imagine being there for a week a month mm-hmm. a year right. that's I mean, what's scary it, it it truly is a shock to your system yeah and to kind of add to that, too, like because I have a different article here that talks about the three major attractions right now. So Matt Herzog um, is the current like owner, and he said that they currently – he says about the attractions, the history, and the experiences that visitors have reported during tours of uh, property, we offer three haunted houses. There's the Penhurst Asylum, the morgue, and the tunnels. And so those are the three things that they kind of go over. And so he said, our haunted attraction is known as one of the best in the United States, utilizing some of the best props, sets, and actors available. We host an asylum attraction in which the patients have overrun the facility meant to contain them and have turned the tables on the guests, their new inmates. The morgue is within the basement of the asylum, utilizing experimental techniques for the preservation and reanimation of corpses. So I'm sorry, right there. They were not reanimating. I hope they weren't reanimating the <laughs> dead in the morgues. So that's already kitschy. Oh, there, there's lots of kitschiness. Like there's a picture yeah. of people in giant 
tubes yeah. and things like that. And then it says the tunnels uh, are where the most dangerous experiments are kept. As guests enter, it is clear that this, a security breach has occurred, and now the monsters are set free. Guests walk through over 1,500 feet of real tunnels ev- evading these monsters. So I don't really care how they paint it. It's definitely a haunted house attraction. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I agree. I mean, I guess where I'm... I feel a little like on both sides of the issue is if this weren't at that location, no one would have a problem with what was happening, you know? I mean, and I get that the location could mean that it's sort of in like bad taste, but if this were, you know. Are you trying to say like if they did a Penhurst like haunted house like in Philadelphia or something like right, that? Or, barn, like, or in a barn or, or in yeah, Westbury or something random like location. that. That would be... Yeah, I yeah I, it's all about the context. Yeah. If you're gonna have like a creepy morgue where someone's like being t- a Frankenstein, I'm okay with that. Because like, but you're not well, gonna do true. that on Auschwitz. You're not gonna do that like you know in the buildings well, of Auschwitz. You're or, not gonna do that. Or you couldn't do it like I wouldn't be comfortable attending something like that, like say in Baltimore or whatever, and calling it like a haunted concentration camp. That, yeah, that would be yeah offensive just by nature of what you're tying it to. I, right? I think that where I'm just a little hung up on it. I mean, I do think it's in bad taste. I do. But um, I, I read something quite a while back that kind of made me rethink like horror movies, for example. And so you talk about like, you know, historically, you know, people went to hangings and burnings of witches and even mm-hmm. like further back, like the, oh, the right. gladiators. The macabre, yeah. yeah. And people being eaten alive by lions and like all of these and things bears, for entertainment. Bears to hurt them, yeah. And, you know, but now we just have manufactured entertainment. It's mm-hmm. fake blood. But we're still getting that same. Oh, you're still getting the the kick of dopamine. Yes, and it's all about getting essentially safely you're, you're scared. A visceral reaction, right? Yes. You're getting that that primal urge to see that kind of stuff right. uh, that we aren't. Yeah. In, in our natural habitat today, aren't getting or aren't right. seeing. And so I guess like my. I think where I'm having a little bit of like, I just don't know is like, yeah, I think that this is in bad taste, but, but I, you know, but I've been to other haunted houses, you know, and like, I haven't thought th- they were in bad taste. And I've never I? been to a haunted house, though, where people are pretending to be insane and talking to walls and walking in circles and acting like they are like autistic, for example. I see that every day at my job. We have um, a, 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 we have many autistic students, and they'll walk in circles and they'll start pacing in the middle of the class. They'll, they'll just get up and start moving in your classroom because they need to. I see kids dimming all the time in my classroom. So, like for me, it's I see it every day, but I don't see it at haunted house attractions. I'm going to see Frankenstein reanimating corpses. I, or I'm going to see that you know the monster. Yeah, no, I mean, I I've seen things not maybe not like that specific and that like one after another, but definitely people acting like off kilter. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and in such a way that, but you know, like if they were out in everyday life, it wouldn't be. You'd be like, oh well, you know, may they may have an issue, but you wouldn't think much of it. But in the context of a haunted house, it's you know elevated and it's scary. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right. I think like I would be more okay if they were gonna do a haunted house anywhere else but not here like the untold stories that we didn't get in the civil action lawsuit the the real stories we saw in penhurst the amount of rape that was happening all the abuse like it is not the filth yeah the filth, the filth of the place it is we didn't even not touch. okay 
to gross $2 million plus a year on the backs of something that was so, to me, atrocious. You know, we need to learn from the experience, not poke a finger at it and like joke about it. Yeah. I think, I guess the other question is though, really, I mean, you know, the, the grounds at Auschwitz, for example, you know, are, are you know, still maintained, people visit, it's holy sacred ground, mm-hmm. really. I suspect that without this attraction, this would just crumble. It already has been. They've actually yeah. demolished a whole bunch of the buildings. They they're they are getting rid of it except the attractions that they want. And I guess that ultimately leads back to your question then, is it worth this level of theater? You know, despite the pain that these thousands of people endured, and you think in if order they're keep it if they're making millions preserved. of dollars, why don't they preserve the place? No, they're demolishing yeah. building after building, yeah. like you really are. Well, I mean, I don't know, but maybe in their defense, those buildings are not salvageable. And I will say, actually, but they've owned for... it since 2010. They're probably more more salvageable, you know, yeah, probably <laughs> a decade but... ago. True. But I will say, two million dollars a year for that age of buildings plus the acreage and the tunnels is yeah. not a lot That's not actually a lot. and, and they, so they are excavating just... the tunnels at the moment yeah. too this like... is just a comment that is off of that website so who should tell a story and this is a comment from august 8 2022 According to East Vincent Township's website, Penhurst Development LLC is planning to demolish all of Penhurst's old buildings and flood the land with parking spaces and warehouses, data centers, which means nothing will be left to remember the many individuals whose lives were spent in agony there. So I'm not sure if that's true. I'd have to go on like do more research, but I did circle that because this person seems like... Uh, didn't all mean. of Penhurst buildings? No, it says um, all the older buildings. The yeah. older buildings. So um, my guess is they're going to keep the Mayflower because that's a moneymaker. They're going to keep the administration building and the tunnels because it's a moneymaker. Yeah. But that's all they're going to use. Quaker. And so, they'll keep Quaker. So, I mean, but... that would take more research that mm-hmm. I don't have time to do live on a podcast. Well, if they do that, then God help whatever business and warehouses roll in because uh, yeah. they are not going to get a whole lot done. Yeah. So in any case, though, I know everyone has their own opinions, and I appreciate having all the opinions there. I just hope that all of this has taught us to be more proactive and not wait for an expose. From the Inquirer. Oh, this is from 2017. And I can't click it open. No. I had to pay for it, so it stops yeah, me from reading. It's from 2017, but yeah, the first couple lines is that $4 million state grant $6 million loan will be used to prepare some of the 23 buildings while others will be demolished. Mm-hmm. So I just, again, that would take more research. Maybe they're yeah. keeping it hush-hush because a lot of this is hush-hush because it's a moneymaker for them. Um, I know that PMPA, their fellowship, they are they have people come in there to actually go into these older crumbling buildings and find artifacts to put away before the buildings are completely demolished. So... It's not in Auschwitz. We're not keeping it to preserve it to showcase what needs to be, what should not happen in the future. It's the exact opposite. We're letting it rot away. We're monetizing the tragedy in a lot of ways, too. Right. But you you also don't have an entire nation behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At least they admit that there was a lot of stuff wrong. Right. There's no denying the Holocaust in Germany. And we're also looking at a country that still is one of the lowest when it comes to mental health. So, yeah, sure, we finally started to acknowledge it, but we're not really going to do much more on it. Well, in any case, I want to thank you guys for coming on here because I really do appreciate all of your honest opinions. Um, I think we did a great job discussing this. Anything else we want to add before we're done for the evening? 
No, well, I, thanks for having us. It was a, I think it's an important a topic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, I do want to end with one last comment though. It's from, I, I want to say this is from the, um, not preserve, but it's from the Penhurst asylum civil war ghosts. It's just a beautiful paragraph I wanted to end with. Penhurst sits as a part haunted attraction, part memorial to the dead. It is hoped that we do not forget what happened here as it is necessary to remember mistakes of the past to prevent them from happening in the future. And then coupled with that is a quote that you have, Laura, from Nellie Bly. And I think that they show the dichotomy of human nature. So you go and read yours. It is only after one is in trouble that one realizes how little sympathy and kindness there are in the world. So I just feel like we need to end there. You can make a better place and fix the problems in the past or you can ignore it. Sorry to bring down the house there the wrong way, but thank you for joining us and have a lovely evening. <laughs>